0: If you haven't heard already, you need to check out adfreeshows.com. We've started making announcements for a brand new schedule starting in November, including a ton of new content. First of all, all of our podcasts are going to have video, and we're going to splice in some fun stuff. And I'm sure the shows will get better as they go. But a lot of times we have a, well, fairly heated or hilarious interaction. And you guys have said you wanted to see my co-host facials and how they uh, get tickled or fired up, whatever the case may be. It's coming to adfreeshows.com, but a ton of new content too. For instance, one of the things we just announced this past weekend. I'm so excited about is our championship belt series. We're going to go talk to the folks who made these belts, who actually originally designed the art and crafted them. They're going to explain exactly what that process was like. We'll discuss briefly who ordered it, what we thought it cost to order, how long it would have taken, et cetera, et cetera. The whole manufacturing process. But then you get some beautiful 4K shots of the actual ring used belts after the fact. Of course, in between, we're going to show you all the great memories and moments that happened. You'll see lots of press clippings and magazine covers and promo shots. Just the story of those iconic championships. It's all coming to adfreeshows.com. I've also started a show part of my collection, including old boots and robes and things like that. and something we're calling The Collection. Some fun comedy stuff that I think you're going to dig, including Mance planning, great friend of the show and independent wrestling superstar. Mance Warner is going to try to explain illogical wrestling to our wives. That's right. Many of us have a wife in our life who is, uh, well, a non fan and we're going to have (laughs) Mance Warner try to make sense out of things like Katie Vick or the chamber of horrors or the kennel in a cell. It's going to be stupid and fun, and it's all happening at adfreeshows.com. Lots of new storytellers coming along the way as well. We're doing a Monday mailbag feature with veterans of the game, like Jerry Briscoe. Mike. They were there for the good, the bad, and the ugly of the World Wrestling Federation. And of course, Jerry was a wrestler himself and had ownership in Florida and Georgia. And now you get to pick their brain every single week at adfreeshows.com. One of my favorite shows I'm looking forward to, well, it's Dr. Tom's x Ray. Maybe you have a favorite match, but why was it your favorite match? We're going to watch those little matches with him and he's going to break it down. Almost like Jod Gruden did his quarterback camp on ESPN for so many years. Well, this is the wrestling equivalent of that. We've even got a happy hour happening every Sunday night. You either get to chat with Medusa or rebel live on zoom, pick their brain, talk about wrestling, talk about life, have a little fun. Of course, we've got comedians along the way to make sure that we're entertaining you. There's so much great stuff coming your way, including brand new opportunities on how you can win lots of prizes. We're doing fun games, like mystery opponent or caption it or Name that theme parts unknown the time limit draw in this quarter, create a gimmick. We're going to be giving away cool prizes every single day over at adfreeshows.com, including once in a lifetime experiences. We're going to line it up where you get a chance. That's right. You get a chance to go to breakfast with Tony and Jr. And then attend an AEW event in person. It's going to be a once in a lifetime experience. You want to talk about experiences. We've got a Saturday morning cartoon thing coming your way. That's going to knock your socks off. We've also got wrestling comedy theater with friend of the show. Cassio kid Did I mention we're getting a hotline. Yeah. There's going to be a hotline coming soon. So new columns will be there too. We've even got a cooking show that we're excited to tell you about called the getting heat cooking show. Of course you get all of the great ask series. I think I just finished ask Conrad volume 16 get to pick our brain about literally whatever you want, but the big announcement that's coming soon, it's our conversation series. I don't want to give you a spoiler just yet, but this is what you've been waiting for. It's going to be so much fun. We haven't even announced it all yet. There is so much great stuff happening over at adfreeshows.com. If you haven't already check it out and be sure to tune in this Friday, we're doing an exclusive zoom. It's Hallows' Eve Havoc. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Myself, Tony Schiavone, of course, Eric Bischoff, and more all there chatting with you live and in costume. Yes, we're really doing it. It's Hallows' Eve Havoc, and it's happening at adfreeshows.com. I hope you'll check it out. You get all of our shows and our archives early and ad-free, but there's so much new exclusive content, it's worth another look. Go check out our reviews right now at isadfreeforme.com. We've even been told this is the best value in wrestling. Find out what everybody's talking about and come join in on the fun today. Join us for Halloween Eve Havoc at adfreeshows.com.
1: Okay, stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful, classy, She's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. And she's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista is available. She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one-carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping, and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Stephen's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's
0: IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.
1: Eric, how are you? What's going on, man? I'm freezing my ass off. <laughs> it's like zero out, and it's the forecast is for below zero temperatures, and we've got snow, and and all that's okay. You know, it's Wyoming, right? I moved here. I knew what I was getting into. The challenge I have is my freaking dog loves this stuff. She thinks it's 75 degree. She acts she reacts the same way to to 0 degree temperatures or below temperature below 0 temperatures and snow the way Mrs. B and I do to 78 and sunny in Waikiki. It's just nuts. She loves this stuff and she just won't let me not take her outside and play in it. So, I'm thawing out though. I'm I my feet are kind of I can feel them now. I had my dog up before I came in here to record, so I'm, I I think I'll be good. I got two. I got two thermoses of coffee out here in the doghouse. I don't have a coffee maker out here, so I gotta. I gotta load up before we get going.
0: By the way, I feel like I should uh, just do what I do now and share that it's seventy-two degrees here in Huntsville. My dog would hate it there.
1: I would love it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it, but my dog would hate it.
0: <laughs> I gotta tell you, I'm so excited about this show. I told you off air before we clicked record that. This show excites the little kid in me. It's Halloween Havoc week here on adfreeshows.com. Uh if you're already up on adfreeshows.com, then you've seen Arn Anderson and I watch the silly Chamber of Horrors from 1991's Halloween Havoc. Uh and then of course today we're breaking down Halloween Havoc 93 with Eric. Uh this Wednesday, Tony Shivani and I will break down Halloween Havoc 89, the very first Halloween Havoc. And then of course this Thursday i'll be catching up with my pal jim ross to talk about halloween havoc 1990 this is halloween havoc week and uh man you were in every clickbait article ever last week saying that you were excited that nxt has revived the brand because halloween havoc at least in your opinion is sort of the hallmark event for wcw old timers like tony Schiavone remember the granddaddy of them all and look back at starcade as the real pole event for wcw but Man, you were the you you sat in the big chair. Halloween Havoc was it? And this show, I loved Halloween Havoc 93.
1: Yeah, I don't know why I feel so strongly about the Halloween Havoc series. I mean, some of them just completely sucked and some of them were pretty good and some of them were fantastic. Um which is usually the case. But uh, there's just something thematically about it. And maybe it's maybe it's that little kid in me. You know, Halloween was as i got older you know thanksgiving became a much more important holiday for me and then the 4th of july you know most recently in the last 20 years has become way more important to me than any other holiday really as far as you know what i look forward to you know christmas obviously i love and it's but that's a different kind of holiday for me but Halloween Havoc to me, I understand why most people, especially guys like Tony and Arn and JR and guys who were around WCW before I even got there, feel differently about Starcade. And Starcade certainly was probably, if you had to pick one event that would be considered by most people to be the tenth pole event of the year, I'm sure Starcade would, would win that, that vote. But for me personally, there's just something so much fun about Halloween and Halloween Havoc. And like I said, when I was a little kid growing up in Detroit, you know, back in the early 60s, you know, the leaves were on the ground. It was crisp and cool outside, and we all got dressed up. In Detroit, they have this thing called Devil's Night. I don't know if they still do or not. Probably not because – things have changed a lot in Detroit since I was a little kid, but you know, devil's night was just awesome. Cause you'd go out and soap all your neighbors, car windows and, you know, collect all the dog crap you had in the backyard, put it in a bag, set it on fire and ring the doorbell. So when the neighbor came out, <laughs> they, had to, uh, they had to stop the fire out and walk in the house with shoes full of dog shit. We always got a big kick out of that, you know, all that kind of, you know, harmless fun, but yeah, you know, fun. um, And and then you go out, you know, the next night you come home with a, you know, we always used uh, pillowcases where Halloween trick or treat bags and we'd go out and just have so much fun. And maybe that's why I always feel differently about Halloween. As I've gotten older, Halloween has taken on a much different kind of vibe for adults. And it's kind of fun, too. I don't know if you've ever been to Vegas on Halloween, but mm, man, it makes Mardi Gras look tame.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's... uh it's a different experience for sure. I have been there. Uh, but believe it or not, there used to be UFCs around that same time. And I would just. I can
1: see why. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about the show, man. This one is in uh, Lakefront Arena in New Orleans. Uh, Meltzer would say there's a, a reported uh, total of fans there, roughly 6,000 fans. Of that, Meltzer said 3,000 paid. Uh, the arena was set up for 8,500. The total gate for this show, which I look back on so fondly, is only 30 grand. Uh, it does a 0.5 buy rate. There's only a 100,000 people getting this on pay per view. For the second year in a row, the event's tagline is spin the wheel, make the deal. lot to unpack here. Uh, it's 1993, so things have changed. Uh, Jim Ross is out of here. So is Jim Hurd. So is Bill Watts. What's left behind is uh, Ole Anderson. Eric Bischoff. Dusty Rhodes. And, of course, Dusty Rhodes. Dusty so,
1: Rhodes was booking. Dusty and Bookie were, D- Dusty and Bookie. <laughs> D- Dusty and Ole were booking at that time. So, and I don't, you know, I, I again, i said this before, I don't want to beat it to death. I've tried to stay away from the creative side of things for all the reasons we've already discussed. So, I I don't really know what the... True and honest dynamic between Dusty and Oli was. I, I'm pretty sure Oli wanted Dusty's job, so there's always that underlying current of tension and and lack of trust and cooperation. Uh, number one, but it was a it was a weird period, and I'm sure it was really hard hard for Dusty. But yeah, they were they were booking away.
0: Well, we talked last week about what a piece of shit. The main event was the spin the wheel, make the deal coal miners glove match. If you haven't watched that match, go back and watch it. It's hilarious. There's this giant pole that nobody's exactly sure either guy can climb. And why are we supposed to be interested in the coal miner? It's just a lot of silly shit, but I love spin the wheel, make the deal. And I love it so much as a concept. And I don't know that we've talked about this on the show, Eric. Me and you and Tony Schiavone are doing our own spin the wheel, make the deal live on zoom this weekend on ad-free shows. We're doing it on the 30th. We're calling it Halloween Eve havoc. And by God, we announced this before NXT did, but I guess more people are paying attention to theirs, but I'm pretty excited about I doubt it.
1: To be honest with you, I doubt it. I think we're a <laughs> <than> we
0: <laughs> well, we have got, uh, well, I don't know exactly what Tony's costume is, but I've got my costume picked out. And I'm ready for this Hallow's Eve Havoc on ad-free shows on the 30th.
1: I'm not, man. I haven't got, I, I was going to order a costume online because I saw some really cool shit, you know, but I didn't get around to it because I procrastinate and I put shit off and I say, I'm going to do it later today, or I'm going to do it tomorrow. And then bam, it's here. It's on us. And I've got nothing, but, but even though I'm in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, there are no cool like costume stores. There's no place from on a retail basis where you can get some really cool Halloween shit. So I think I'm going to go back to my childhood, back to the 60s and I'm going to make my own. And I've got a Yeah, I've got an idea. And it'll be wrestling related. It'll be it'll be wrestling themed. So I'm 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 kind of looking forward to this. I don't know how I'm going to make it cuz I am not a crafty fellow. I am not. But Mrs. B is, so I'm going to probably enlist her to try to keep me from embarrassing myself.
0: It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late to find yourself at a railway crossing, waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you may feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't ever to the naked eye trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they are. and They can't stop quickly. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop over a mile to stop by that time. It's too late and the result is a potentially deadly crash. The point is you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The trains can't stop quickly. Even if it sees you, it ends in disaster. If the Signals are on. The train is on its way and you just need to remember one thing. Stop trains. Can't. I got mine picked out. I think you're going to dig it. I'm ready for it. If you haven't already, go go join us at adfreeshows.com. I, I, we've got a lot of fun announcements we've been dripping out about folks who are going to be joining our network and all the interactive experiences. And I think this will be right now, Eric, it might be our next to last non-video version of the podcast. So as we start marching forward into November, you and I are going to have a video version of what we're doing right now. And can you imagine? Really? Can are you, you kidding me? No.
1: That means I got to get up at four o'clock in the morning and shave and like run a comb through. I don't even use a comb anymore. I just run my fingers through my hair, but that's cause I'm, you know, I'm not a kid, So I got to look good in the morning. No,
0: no, you don't have to look good. They just want to see your expression when we yell at each other about it was fucking daytime and shit like that.
1: Oh, we need to go back to that. <laughs> bro. you and Conan had a lot of fun with that on Twitter a while back. I don't know if you caught my response, but I did a little research it was daylight, and it was live because it was 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern due to the NBA playoffs. Go back and look. Do some re- – you and Conan, you had a lot of fun with that, busting my balls and Conan talking about how everybody kept him back in a locker room. I'm calling bullshit. Conan, <laughs> I love you. I love you, but I'm calling bullshit.
0: I hope he throws coffee at you in honor of Eddie. I hope he does too. Let's, uh, let's talk about Halloween havoc. I'm so excited to talk about 1993, but we should mention that there's, uh, well, some things happening on the other channel. Meltzer would write a considerable bit of talent turmoil hit the world wrestling federation this past weekend, including the first time in more than a decade that a champion left the promotion before losing his belt. Intercontinental champion, Sean Michaels, 28 considered by many as the best worker in the country, quit the company early last week before a match could take place where he would lose his title. While this was not confirmed at press time, it was believed there would be a 20-man tournament for the vacant title held on September 27th at the TV tapings in New Haven, Connecticut. Of course, this is the era where Sean was uh, becoming a bit of a problem, and uh, that's going to continue for, I don't know, the next five years or so. Chat me up here. When you had a chance once upon a time, or when WCW rather had a chance to snag Bret Hart a few years prior to this, uh, they jumped at the chance when Shawn Michaels is upset and fed up and looking to leave any interest at all. I know we've addressed it during the height of the NWO era, but what about here in 93? Was there any interest in trying to bring Sean over? None, none. I mean, Sean, you know, Sean had a reputation.
1: Is being difficult to work with, and you know, a little bit like Chris Jericho, kind of a prima donna. So, I mean, casting aspersions, but when you reach a certain level of success in almost any business, particularly the entertainment business, there is a a tendency to to become prima donna esque. And I think that was Shawn Michaels' uh, reputation. And I, I don't remember anybody, you know, even suggesting for a minute to bring Shawn in. And didn't he, didn't, didn't Shawn Michaels inherit like a big chunk of cash from some guy in Texas that was a fan, yes. like millions of dollars or something ridiculous. Yeah. And, and, and look, I, I like Shawn Michaels. I, I get along just fine and I have a ton of respect for him. And I think Shawn would say that during this period of time, he was distracted with a lot of bad habits and um, probably wasn't at the top of his game mentally or, or any other way emotionally. Um, but, um, you know, like I said, I, I don't remember anybody, you know, bringing up Sean's Sean's name at the time. I and mean, you got to remember WCW in 1993 didn't have like a lot of cash laying around. There was nobody in 1993 in Turner broadcasting, Ted Turner included, that was willing to write any big checks. WCW was broken in 1993. We were coming off of a, a lot of transitions, you know, from herd to fry to Watts and now me. Um, and I hadn't gotten my feet under the ground underneath me yet. You know, I was just trying to figure out what the job was and and how to do it. So there was nobody willing to throw a lot of money at anybody at that point.
0: Immediately uh, after Havoc, all the big names leave for a European tour. I believe it starts on the 26th of October. It goes through November 7th. And Meltzer wrote, so nothing major is happening until the clash, but the next newsletter begins with the infamous Sid vicious R Anderson stabbing story. Uh, WCW is to embark on its second England tour starting October 26th and going through the 30th before heading to Germany. No sooner than it was officially announced the WWF, which said it wouldn't be returning until February announced they would tour England in October. So they really see this as you sort of stepping on their toes. I mean, I, I don't know how to respond to that. I've heard of counter-programming major cities. If you guys were running a pay-per-view in Chicago, well, let's do a big show across town for cheaper tickets with bigger names. Okay. But now we're taking it across the pond. It's an interesting move, huh? Well, it, yes and no.
1: Yes, because of the timing, but no, because WCW was really focused on trying to get a foothold internationally. Keep in mind that WCW had a, or excuse me, WWE had a great head. They had been doing great business in the UK, in particular,ly and Germany for a long time. They had great relationships with outstanding promoters who had great relationships with outstanding venues and media outlets. So the WWE was really um, operating at a very high level internationally long before WCW began to get some traction, and and I think this was WCW's first real effort in, in trying to do so. And keep in mind the, the if, if memory serves me correctly, WWE numbers were really suffering internationally. They were still. I, let me take that back. WWE numbers had dropped substantially from their peaks in previous years, so there was a feeling, a perception, that they were losing some ground, which is why you know you see the British Bulldog on the roster on this show, and why you see Lord Steven Regal on this show, and um, Sid Vicious as well it was was a big part of that. So. Um, international strategy, by the way, is what I mean by part of that. So the timing probably made it look more carnivorous off, you know, more like an offensive move than anything. Um, but it was really something that was more strategic and had been in play for quite some time.
0: What's interesting is I'm not sure the company ever planned on running a tour. I think they just wanted to foil yours. They start hyping up this. European tour they're going on all over their TV, but they never announce on sale dates or actual dates for the events. Nothing specific. It just feels like it's just to poke the bear, which I don't know. Feels like you guys could have sued for, but whatever. Uh, on October 22nd, WCW ran a free fairground show in Phoenix, which drew about 2,000 people. Meltzer would say some B shows this week drew worse than horrible with cards in Ritzland, Virginia, drawing less than a hundred and one in Johnson city, Tennessee, drawing right at a hundred. Can you imagine putting this talent on the road for a hundred fans, but it's happening. Yeah. That, yeah. And that's a problem with, we, we didn't have a lot
1: of great promoters. You know, Gary Jester did his best, by the way, if I see Gary again, anytime in the near future, um, I'm probably going to smack him in the head for booking this fucking building in New Orleans. It's is the ugliest TV building I've ever seen. It is horrible. Gary, you should be ashamed. If you're not, you will be by the time this podcast is over with. But, um, God, where was I? Sorry. I was well, going off on Gary. We were talking
0: Gary. about how there's you know, really – Poor drawing house shows, a hundred fans. Oh, 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 I was going to say, no, I was talking
1: about promoters. Here's the challenge. You know, fairs are, they're an easy go-to where they were back then because fairs, a lot of these smaller fairs had reasonable budgets and they would buy the show completely. You know, they would come to WCW and say, okay, we'll give you $12,500, you know, for a three hour show or two hour show or whatever the number was, $25,000, $2,000, whatever the number was. Um, So it was a a bought out show. And and as a result of it being a bought out show, WCW did very little promotion. That was really up to the person who, you know, they call it four walling, meaning they're responsible for everything other than the talent. That WCW provided, but they, you know, it was a four walled show and oftentimes you get promoters with no experience. They think, wow, WCW, they're on TV. People could be kicking down the doors to come in and people don't kick down the doors to do anything. You've got to promote your ass off no matter what it is. Even if you're hot, you still have to promote. You got to let the world know you're there. And I think it's so often the case in a lot of these fair shows. And so I've never, you know, Vern, I learned it in AWA. You know, Vern was dependent upon fair shows for a while because he couldn't afford to promote anything on on his own dime. The only way that he could create any cash flow was to four wall live events um, to fairs, especially in the summertime when there were a lot of them and in the fall. Um, but they never worked. They just never, they didn't work out well for the fair promoters. They got a bad taste in their mouth. The brand, you know, WCW suffered because those hundred people that did show up looked around and went, God, are we stupid? (laughs) We're the only ones here. This is clearly not interesting. We shouldn't have come. So it's just a bad idea to, to four wall, you know, fair events in general. But it doesn't surprise me that the numbers were this low. It really doesn't.
0: Hey, real quick. I just want to run a timeout and remind everybody the clock is ticking. The election is right around the corner. No, I'm not talking politics here on the show, but I am telling you that there is going to be some uncertainty on the other side of this election. People are going to wonder what's going to happen with our economy. Are there going to be major changes or are there not? I'm concerned that all of a sudden interest rates could go wacky. Lots of folks saying that they're going to vote by mail and we can't trust the system and People are saying, oh, it may go to the Supreme court. I don't know that any of that's going to happen. Here's what I do know. I have the best interest rate I've ever had to offer in 19 years. in this industry started doing mortgages, August 27th, 2001, all this time later, up until this month, I've never been able to offer rates that I can offer right now. I don't know how long they'll last. I don't know. Once this election happens, is there a bunch of overreaction? Is there stress? Does stuff really start to change with our economy in a major way that could impact interest rates? Now, why does that matter to you if you're already in your house and you think, hey, I'm not having trouble making my payment? You can be overpaying, not just a little, a lot. We're routinely helping our listeners say 50, 60, 70, 80, even $100,000 worth of unnecessary interest. Great friend of the show, Ian from Ring of Honor recently reached out and said, Hey, you know what? You told me I needed to do this back in March. I didn't listen. You reached out in April. I didn't have time. I got time right now. Can we run the numbers? You're darn right. We can. He cut years off of his loan. You hear me? Years. I don't know that that's possible in a couple weeks. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying historically, when there is a change in leadership, the markets respond. What is it going to be? Especially if it's held up or somebody's going to contest it. 2020 has been crazy enough. Let's take advantage of maybe the. One of the few good things that's happened in 2020, the lowest interest rates ever, but seriously do it right now before it's too late. We don't know how long this is going to last and it could change like that. And when it's gone, it's gone forever. I've never seen it this slow. It costs absolutely nothing to let us run the numbers. It's totally free. There's no credit report, check fee. There's no application fee. None of that junk. You don't pay anything out of pocket. If I can't save you money, I won't waste your time. But if you can hear my voice and you're in a 30 year loan, you will be overpaying your single biggest debt. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of by how much. Let us run the numbers right now. We're licensed in more than 40 states. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket, but you need to act fast at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. That's savewithconrad.com. Well, it gets worse. Another report in the observer described it as a desperation period coming off the smallest Omni crowd in history and the lowest rated weekend in the history of wrestling on TBS, the October 3rd card at the Omni, the Omni drew 800 paid fans for 8,000 bucks. It's the smallest crowd in nearly 20 years for any pro wrestling event there. It was so bad that scalpers were trying to unload ringside seats for a dollar. Just literally give me anything. And that came just three days after WCW canceled the TV taping in Anderson, South Carolina, because there were no fans, literally no fans, depending on who you want to believe there's anywhere between 40 and 210 fans inside of a 3,900 seat arena when the decision was made to cancel the show. So you've got the crew, the truck and all the wrestlers there. And they're outnumbering the audience. Crazy, right? the fiasco was, was blamed on bucking a major fair in town. But in reality, the product, the product has reached depths where it virtually has no interest for a paid house show product. That's according to the observer, this fiasco, this television cancellation is a loss for WCW of around $50,000. And when you consider that when they're in the Omni and draw only drawing $8,000, you're hemorrhaging cash. It makes all the sense in the world that when you get your hands all the way around this thing, you say, "We got to cut out some of this house show bullshit." No, yeah. Look, it's and
1: what's interesting, and I don't disagree with anything. Um, just for the record, everybody might want to grab a pencil or your phone, make note of this. I agree with everything that Dave said in his coverage of this. It, it, he he said nothing that wasn't true. What To to add to it, to add some context to it, I think it's important for people to understand the reason why. Ask yourself why. It's one thing to look at a headline or look at a story and go, okay, that might be true, maybe not true, maybe half true. But if you think it's true, ask yourself why is that? And the reason that at this point in time that WCW was hemorrhaging cash, the reason WCW couldn't attract flies if they rolled their talent in horse shit the reason why you couldn't put enough people in a building to do television was because the product had been sucking for close to a year or a year and a half. What you're seeing here in October in terms of not in terms of the matches that you saw on TV and not in terms of the finishes or any of that, That, it's a different conversation, but in terms of the momentum or lack thereof in WCW was a result of more than anything, Bill Watson's booking because the impression people have of your product is something that develops over a year, year and a half, six months leading up to an event. If you've got no momentum six months before an, an event, if your brand is suffering six months, three months before an event, even a year, you can't expect for an, a live event to be successful. And I think WCW had been corkscrewing into the, into the sewer for so long that this was like the the, the crescendo of, of chaos, if you will, or, or of disaster. It was just as bad as it had ever been. And, it, and, and conversely, it takes a year or more to turn things around. And unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how people want to look at the show – This was right in the middle of that transition. The previous year had sucked. The creative sucked. The strategy sucked. Everything about WCW was about as bad as it could possibly have been from a, a morale point of view, from a performance point of view, from a creative point of view. There was nothing you could point to in WCW in 1992 leading up to this or even in early 93 that you could say, wow, yeah, everything about WCW is pretty bad except for these things. Now there was some talent. Don't get me wrong. Talent is a separate issue. Vader, I think was probably if he wasn't at his peak as a performer during this period of time, he had to be damn close. You know, sting was on fire. There was, you know, Ric Flair was back. There was some great things to talk about from a talent perspective, but from a branding and a marketing and a creative position our perspective, this was about as low as, as it could, could be. And we had, we spent a good year, year and a half to dig ourselves out of this morass. And as you pointed out, you know, this was one of the early in 93, or sh- sh- I should say early in my role as executive producer in 93 is where I really started butting heads with, um, Bob do, and a cat by the name of Don Sandifer, who he was just a potted plant. He was Bob Dew's drinking buddy. It's the only reason he had a job. He wasn't good at anything, but he was, a, he was fun to drink with, evidently. Um, these two guys would sit around and, you know, come up with strategies to increase the number of house shows. Regardless of how much money each one of those house shows were losing, they were the brain trust that decided, oh, well, we'll just produce more shows like somehow that would make them more profitable. Um, Instead, all they did was increase the amount of money that WCW was losing. And this was really one of the, this period of time was when I, 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 you know, even in my role as executive producer, this was kind of outside of my role. So when Bill Shaw, would call an executive committee meeting for WCW, and it included myself as executive producer, you know, included, you know, obviously Bob Dew, who was the vice president of the company at the time and and ranked higher than me. I actually reported to Bob Dew. Don Sandifer would be there. Sharon Sidello would be there. Um, all of the VPs in the company would be there and a couple of the directors. And we would have these executive committee meetings, you know, kind of going through, okay, where are we? You know, what, where are we today? What are our projections? You know, where do we stand against our budget? You know, and this is something that happened once a week, every other week for sure. And everybody would go around and say, okay, this this is what I think we should do. This is what I think we should do. This is what I think we should do. And inevitably You know, someone from live events, I won't pin it necessarily on Bob or Don, but one of the two would stand up and say, well, we need to increase the number of live events. And I am not a math guy. That's no secret. I don't pretend I am. But even I would look at the numbers and go, wait a minute. If you go out 10 times and you lose $1,000 each time you go out the door, then why does going out the door 25 times make that prospect any more appealing and of course they would get pissed off what they were trying to do was keep their jobs especially don sandifer if we weren't promoting any buildings if we weren't booking any venues don sandifer didn't have a gig and and bob Dew was trying to protect his buddy so they keep they keep coming up with these plans to increase house shows, and there was absolutely no logic to it whatsoever. Even for someone like me who is not a finance guy, I could figure it out. And it finally got to the point where I stood up and said, "This is crazy. You guys are not thinking clearly. We should shut down our house shows." And not even not even do another one. We'll do TV. We'll do pay-per-views. Not do another house show until we build up some demand for the product. Take the resources that we're wasting in live events, which we were. We were burning money. I don't say we. WCW was burning money w- with regard to house shows and live events. Even though it kept a lot of people busy. You know, Gary Jester, Don Sanifer, people underneath them. Yeah, they all had jobs. But those were really expensive jobs. For the company to hold on to, because we not only had their salaries, we also had the amount of money that we were burning just for them to justify having a job. It made me a really unpopular cat inside of the WCW offices with a number of people. Fortunately, maybe very popular with Bill Shaw, <laughs> and he, he eventually gave me Bob Do's job.
0: Let's talk about another name, Ole Anderson, uh, his son. Brian Rogowski, using the name Brian Anderson, makes his debut on September 28th in Kennesaw, Georgia, losing to your old pal Buddy Lee Parker. Uh, Brian was a Georgia high school state champion in amateur wrestling, but his run in the business never really goes anywhere. He winds up going to Smoky Mountain and then ultimately retires from the business just a couple years later. And I think after he retired, he went to law school at, uh, Georgia state university. Good for him. Yeah. I mean, listen, he realized, Hey, this might not be exactly for me. And now he's gone on and has a successful life or so it seems. What do you remember about Ole's son wanting to get in the business here?
1: Very little man. It was a cup of coffee. I mean, it was so short. I mean, it was a decent kid i didn't interact with him a lot in in my role i was more involved on the television side of things not the creative side and certainly not the talent side so i i knew him i i you know probably said hello to him several times and maybe even engaged in a brief conversation but it would have been you know kind of a superficial hey how are you kind of thing so i I never really got to know him very well but i'm happy to hear he obviously a smart kid guy adult now i'm sure um and it's, it, you know, it takes a lot of self-awareness to realize that, you know, as much as I wanted this career, it's not really for me. And then shift gears and end up in law school. That's awesome. Whether he, whether he became an attorney or not, you know, the fact that he shifted gears and, and made that career change is, uh, I think it says a lot for him. I don't know where he got it. It must have been from his mother because his dad was a knucklehead. <laughs>
0: Let's talk about another knucklehead. Brett Hart is on Jim Ross's radio show on October 9th, reiterating his remarks regarding drug use in WCW and Ric Flair. Meltzer would say it turned into a cheap shot since they kept phoning the Jacksonville Coliseum where WCW was that night, trying to get a hold of Ric Flair to give the impression uh, impression that Flair wouldn't defend himself against the remarks, knowing that WCW is not going to let Flair do that. But these remarks from Brett, get everyone's attention in the WCW locker room. A lot of people were laughing off his comments about Ric Flair, but the thing that got him upset or everybody in the locker room upset is the insinuation that most of the locker room was a bunch of drug users. And he says, quote, what about the other federations? Are they the minor leagues? I would say so. I don't mean that in a nasty way. There's the the WCW, which is probably the only other form of wrestling next to the world wrestling federation but I couldn't hold them close to the world wrestling federation. When it comes to actual production and wrestling, they have some good wrestlers. A lot of times their wrestlers are interchangeable, but I don't think that they have as good of a product. I hate to bring it up, but even as far as the drug testing, for example, the WCW, their drug testing must be pretty shoddy because you can tell by looking at the guys in the WCW that they're all obviously drug abusers. There's no hiding that. Woo a blanket statement they're all obviously drug users now maybe one could argue well brett was just looking to stir up some controversy and get some heat but other people would say well that that crosses the line to say we're all drug abusers they're supposed to be brotherhood and wrestling but it's not exactly a unique concept that brett hart's burying people in a in an interview what do you remember hearing about this and what do you make of his comments all this time later typical of
1: A Bret Hart then and now, you know, Bret has always. If Bret doesn't have somebody to bury, criticize, blame, he he can't really have much of a conversation. Uh, He doesn't have much to say, and uh, yeah, it didn't it it didn't resonate with me. You know, I think partially because I don't know WWE Vince McMahon. Federal court, indicted, drug distribution. I mean, uh, are we going to honestly say, we're going back a long time. This is not the WWE of today, but we're going back to 1993. You know, we we talked when we opened the show about Shawn Michaels. Let's talk about drug abuse at WWE back in 1993 and guys like Shawn Michaels. And let's talk about the steroid abuse and the allegations and the indictments I think Brett was probably you know, trying to clear the smoke you know in his own room uh, by and creating it in somebody else's as much as anything and and add to that, you know, that's just Brett. He is, you know, i I'll, I'll I'll paraphrase Brett or i'll I'll actually use his words in this context. I don't mean to say anything bad about anybody, but you know, Brett has a tendency to be a whiny bitch. Mm. <laughs> it's just it is what it is. You know, and I I, I recently, you know, and I told you this a couple, you know, months ago, last time I saw Brett, I said, you know, I'm going to take the high road, whatever, you do whatever you want, I'm not going to get in the mud with you. And then, you know, he continues to just rehash all his just negative nonsense and, and burying people. And it doesn't make me angry. It doesn't, it's just, that's Brett and if he doesn't whether he's burying Ric Flair whether he's burying Mick Foley whether he's burying Vince McMahon whether he's burying Eric Bischoff whether he's burying Bill Goldberg he's just a negative miserable guy that's how he goes through his daily life and he, he was doing it in 1993 and he's still doing it today
0: well uh we've uh we've talked a little bit about this and some of our Eric fires back we do have another one coming your way this week on ad free shows Let's talk about Gene Okerlund. He's going to start on TV on November 1st. The new WWF magazine comes out with no story or even mention of the now it's our turn segment. They had a brief item of Gene Okerlund leaving, trying to claim it was their decision and the idea of someone leaving the organization because of a bigger money offer somewhere else. Well, that seems hard to acknowledge. Uh, and the story said that Oakland had become one of the most visible characters of the company, but the company had decided it was time to move in a new direction and that Oakland's contract wasn't renewed. How important was getting gene to WCW?
1: I, I think it was real important. Keep in mind, we were trying, I was trying my goal, my focus, primary focus at the time was to change the perception of WCW. Because WCW had evolved from Jim Crockett promotions and you know, the NWA lineage that was attached for quite a while and, and and all of the things that made WCW feel like a regional promotion. The fact that we were on TBS helped create the impression that we were a small southern regional promotion or WCW was prior to me getting there. That was the perception. And sometimes in order to affect your reality, you have to first affect the perception of that reality. And one of the things, you know, Jim Ross had left. and, And we needed somebody to help us from an announcer position to help us change the perception. And bringing Gene in was not like the most important thing that we did but it was certainly a, a very important thing that we did. It was, it was it, it, on a scale of one to 10, it was a six or a seven because it helped change the perception. Not in a major way. Gene wasn't in the ring wrestling. Gene wasn't winning any world heavyweight championships, but announcers tend to spend a lot of time on camera just by the nature of what they do. And I think you know bringing Gene in was one of the first dominoes That needed to fall in terms of changing that perception. Okay, stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful, classy, she's brilliant, she will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. And she's easy. Wait, what? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista's available. She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one-carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping, and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Stephen's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com.
0: There's another story in The Observer about uh, the NWA-WCW court fight. Which originally appeared on October first, it went to the wires the next day. I, I guess the the gist is some of the NWA promoters are trying to raise funds uh, to sue. Um, there was a document that was signed by Sagaguchi that gave WCW the rights to use the NWA title belt and name, and this has just become a big mess. The entire NWA lawsuit over the world title. It's so bad that on the hotline, Tony Schiavone says that the belt that Rick Rude now holds will no longer be recognized as a world title, and that Flair and Rude will simply wrestle for the physical belt with the two referees, and the only world champion in WCW will be Vader, which I guess eliminates the need for a unification match, which eventually still happens. Um, this is a little weird to say the least. They started referring to this as the international title, as a holdover. And then I think people would just start commonly referring to it as the big gold belt. What'd you make of all this NWA nonsense?
1: I hated it all. I I hated it all. Unfortunately, I didn't have to deal with too much of it other than try to make sense out of it on television, Uh, not creatively, but in terms of graphics and and all that type of stuff. So it really didn't affect me much, but it was such a clusterfuck and it was just desperation, you know, on the part of, I, I think certain people, um, felt strongly that the NWA had value. Um, I, I was not one of those people, and partly because I just had no exposure to it. You know, as as a fan growing up in Detroit and Pittsburgh and Minneapolis, NWA was not on my radar. It didn't exist in my mind uh, until much later on in my life, and even then, it was peripheral. Um, so. Uh, I didn't understand it. Why people were so desperately trying to hold on to this craziness. Um, there was such a cloud on the title, Uh, not a cloud of legal title, not, not the title being the belt, but there was such a cloud over the intellectual property surrounding that belt. There still is, I think, I don't know. I mean, it's been the whole NWA. Sorry, Billy Corrigan, Nicholas, you know, Nick, I love you. You Billy, you're a good dude. I wish you the best. But this whole NWA resurrect the NWA thing is, to me, was a mistake just because that NWA title has been drugged through the sewage for so many years. And this was WCW right in the middle of it, you know, getting splattered with the stink that came from it. I, I didn't understand it then. It was just such a cluster.
0: It really is a a waste of time. And it's also announced on the hotline that WCW is going to reintroduce the light heavyweight title belt that Bill Watts dumped after just three weeks. Of course, that makes sense. We know Bill Watts is not into doing stuff off the top rope and high flying stuff. He wants big, heavy bruiser, brawler, amateur athletes. Um, But this decision to bring it back, were you involved in this at all? I ask because you were such a big proponent of the cruiserweight division that we know is going to help take nitro to the next level.
1: Uh, no, no, there were two separate conversations, really the cruiserweight division on this light heavyweight decision. I was not involved. That was not something that I was asked about or asked to chime in on.
0: Let's keep it moving here. And let's talk about some tapings that they're going to have at center stage on September 29th. They're going to tape shows that would air on October 9th and October 16th. For the October 9th episode, Ric Flair would beat. Quan and a good match with Fifi at ringside. Of course, we know Fifi went on to be, uh, Rick's life companion. Now, Wendy, uh, Steve Regal keeps the TV title going to a 15 minute draw with Arn Anderson and what was described as a not good match. And that really jumped off the page to me. The idea that Steve Regal and Arn Anderson, two guys who were universally renowned as being incredible performers don't have a good match. Was that just a styles clash? You think? I think so, and because they're both, you know,
1: both Steve and and Arn were incredibly professional. Uh, I think it's just sometimes, yeah, it's styles and chemistry. And it just didn't work out. I don't think it it was a reflection of either of their characters or or abilities in particular. But um, Steve Regal definitely had his own style. Arn certainly did as well. And rather than sitting down and probably going, okay, you know, steve this isn't you know this is a different kind of a match i'm not used to working your type of style S- steve probably felt the same way okay how do we compromise what do we do uh, rather they just both went out there and did what they normally do and in this case it didn't work out so well
0: there's uh vader doing a match with rick steamboat it's a very good match after the match Quan attacks steamboat vader's about to jump off of the top rope when cactus jack comes out nails him with a shovel knocks vader off the top rope we're on a collision course with those two of course uh sting and bobby eaton was supposed to be a good match but Meltzer says it was much worse than it sounds uh, the hollywood Blinds were back uh, this is after brian pillman's been off tv for six weeks with an ankle sprain cactus jack is going to be Quan in a false count anywhere match and the main event is the return of a uh, Vader steamboat, uh, steamboat match. This time it's for a lumberjack situation. But the thing that really jumped out in this, well, two things, I guess. One is Quan. He's all over these tapings. It's almost a forgotten figure in WCW. Uh, you have a, uh, a, a background in, in that style fighting. I believe this is actually Chris champion though. What can you tell us about Quan in WCW?
1: God, I forgot all about him until you just mentioned him. I I can I can picture him. And he did have much like Sean Waltman, had a, a martial arts kind of style that he would integrate in, into his performances. But I, man again, it was a moment in time and I wasn't really dealing with talent too much and and certainly was involved in creative. So from that perspective, man, he's just, he doesn't register with me, but I do remember watching him and he did have a unique style again, much like Sean Waltman did in some respects.
0: What's what's fabulous is though it's Chris champion who you've probably seen before this with Jim Crockett promotions in 87 and 88 Florida championship wrestling in 86 and 87. And all over the indie circuit, FMW, uh, it's just, I don't know. It stands out to me as being very interesting. This look, uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately, living in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and it's written in the observer, uh, that, uh, I believe his, he was supposed to be named something else. Uh, I believe it was supposed to be a different pronunciation, perhaps. Yoshiquan. Kwan, uh, Yoshi Kwan, Yoshi Kwan. It was it was supposed to be Yochi, which was uh the the Chinese. I guess it was supposed to be he was supposed to be Chinese, but for whatever reason, uh, as as the legend goes, Tony Schiavone just called him Yoshi, which is Japanese, and it stuck. So they just see I and that's what I just did when you mentioned. I went, oh yeah, Yoshi Kwan, I remember that.
1: But yeah, so Tony got his nationality screwed up. where to go, Tony?
0: And Harley Race is his manager, and it's just quite the look. It's very nineteen ninety three. You got to remember, and as we say on the show here all the time, context is king, but she go back just a few years prior to this at Kung Fu movies at the video store, man, that was a guilty pleasure that almost everybody's dad listening to this watched, right? Yoshi. No, I mean, look, you got
1: to, that's the fun part of doing these shows is going back and putting them in the context of the time. Because if you watch a show like this, like I did this morning, you know, I went to the WWE network. I went to October 23rd, 1993 Halloween havoc and I sat and I watched it. Got up at four 30 this morning, hit the coffee, sat there in the dark watching this, you know, and it it brought back a lot of memories, but keep in mind the number one film in the United States on October 23rd, 1993 was the Beverly Hillbillies with Jim Varney and Dabney Coleman. Come on. That's a movie that we no one would even make today. I mean, it, but, you know, it was, at the time, it fit a formula that the audience was reacting to. That's why they made the movie. Um, probably two years later, you couldn't have sold that script, you know, to anybody, but it was a number one movie. And the same thing is true with wrestling. So many things that were being done, both in WWE and at WCW, word derivatives based on ripoff, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I like the term derivative because it's just so television. that's what TV people call. Uh, TV insiders, everything is a derivative because it sounds better than ripoff. But there was so much stuff that was you know derivative of things that were popular, as you just pointed out in other forms of television and entertainment. and Yo Chi Kwan, um, was, sorry, Tony was, you know, I'm sure a perfect example of that.
0: Uh, the other thing that stands out besides Quan is Rick rude comes out with the belt and, uh, it's interesting to see rude with this belt because in this era, he would sometimes alternate. Sometimes he would have the big gold belt underneath the robe, which made a big reveal, but other times he would wear it around the outside of the robe, which was video game esque and hilarious. Uh, but either way, he's going to talk about his match with Flair for the pay per view here, and he has a uh, a question for Fifi: Do you want to go with Flair or come with me? Which, which Meltzer says qualifies as one of the better double entendres of recent memory. Uh, how great was Rick? I know that for whatever reason, Rick Rude and Rick Flair didn't exactly love working together, but goodness gracious, their promos on each other in this feud—this was great stuff
1: it really was you know it's funny i don't know when it was maybe a year or two ago i was talking to wendy aka fifi and she was telling me a story about having to work with rick rude during this period of time and she just did not enjoy it at all um so i could imagine that wendy probably cringed when she heard that but you know it's the wrestling business
0: there are many paths to finding your family story Whichever way you choose, tracing your family generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity with ancestry DNA, it's easy to get started with ancestry. An ancestry DNA test will tell you where your ancestors are from, and ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees will let you discover their personal stories. You could find a famous relative, or perhaps a photo of your great grandma as a little girl. Whatever you find. It's sure to change the way, the whole way you look at your family history and yourself. After all, the story of your family is the story of you and researching your history is a fun activity for the whole family. And the stories you learn about your shared past can bring you closer together. That's certainly been my experience. This is something that we break out around the holidays every year, mom and dad and all my aunts and uncles and the extended family. It's always fun to talk about what we found. Ancestry DNA is the game changer. It can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. You can't find that anywhere else. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, but can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographic detail about your history. Trace the past of your recent ancestors and learn how and why your family moved from place to place around the world. No other DNA tests deliver such a unique, interactive experience. And it's easy to start making discoveries with Ancestry. Just grab an Ancestry DNA kit and start a free trial. That's right. Free trial to amplify your discoveries with Ancestry's billions of records. Start exploring your family today head to my URL at ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks to get your ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks. Let's get to the show. Halloween havoc, 1993, by the way, overwhelmingly 70% thumbs up, according to the readers of the wrestling observer, 18.7% thumbs down 11.3% thumbs to the middle. You watched it back, Eric. You agree with me? This is a thumbs up show. I I I was kind of ambivalent
1: about it. Yeah, you know, probably a thumbs in the middle for me. And and part of it is Gary Juster's fault because that fucking building was so ugly. Every time there was a camera, you know, hard camera shot across the arena, looking across the ring, it was just like this. It was like pipe and draped off and empty seats. And you know, I'm not blaming Gary necessarily on the empty seats, but the building itself was just not configured for television um and every time i kind of forget about how horrible it looked on television um there'd be a you know a hard camera shot that would remind me so th- this morning i had, had a real hard time just not bad mouthing gary jester in my own head but um I, I think there were elements of it that i really like and i'm you know i got to put over the open of the show with tony shivani and the kids tremendous that was some of WCW's best work, not only in 1993, but probably up until about 1995 or 96. Did we not produce anything quite as entertaining as that? It was so well done. Tony did a fantastic job. And so did the kids that were a part of that open. That was a Sharon Sadello. I don't often give Sharon Sidello much credit. Um, but that was a Sharon Sidello, I believe it was her. Um, Effort, possibly a guy by the name of Michael Shockett would have been involved as the actual producer, but I think conceptually Sharon would have had a lot to do with it. And it was just so well done. I laughed my ass off. I'm going to probably go back and watch it again.
0: Go back and watch the open. It's tremendous. There's several kids uh, out trick-or-treating. It's sort of shot cinematic style. It's getting late. One of them says Halloween havoc's about to come on. So they should go home. But Matt wants to see something really scary. So they ring the doorbell of a large, spooky house. And you can tell because (laughs) it's not covered in dog hair. It's not actually Tony's house, but Tony answers the door. And one of the kids asks why he's not at the pay-per-view and he answers that a helicopter is waiting to pick him up. He invites the kids inside. And as he closes the door, it reveals a sinister grin and inside Matt demands to be shown something scary or they're leaving. Tony tears his head off, transforms into a monster, and it's time to start our show, Halloween Havoc. We fade into the arena. What a great shot.
1: Now, that's not even the best part. The best part is when the kid comes in the house, Matt comes in the house, he goes, I smell something. And Tony says, that's my wife. She's cooking. And then he looks at the camera and is like, oh, my God, he's cooking his wife. (laughs) He's going to eat his wife. It was just. So well done. And Tony did a great job with it. So yeah, go back and watch it. It, it. Watch this. If for no other reason, and there's there's plenty of good reasons to watch this pay-per-view, by the way, even though I overall I was just kind of, eh, you know, the whole spin the wheel, make the deal thing just as everybody knows that listens to me on this podcast, did not move my needle. Um, and and there were some other, you know, really creative kind of issues with it for me. But the open was the open made it worth it.
0: Is that, um, is this, this little open with Tony Schiavone? Is that shot by Sharon Sadella? Is this one of her productions?
1: Well, she wouldn't have shot it. She, she, she would have probably hired either an outside firm to shoot it and to create it. Um, and she would have worked closely with them. We're not taking anything away from her, but she, she didn't know how, she wouldn't know how to turn a camera on. She, she wouldn't know how to set up a shot. That's not That wasn't her thing, and it wasn't her responsibility, by the way. I'm, again, I'm not being cruel or, or mean or disrespectful. I'm just – it is what it is. But she would have you know, conceptually storyboarded it, been very much involved in it from that perspective, and then probably either done it internally, although I doubt it. This was too well done to have been done internally by WCW at the time. So my guess is they, they farmed
0: it out. Well, I'm just saying, this is the same lady who sort of greenlit you know, little people blowing up boats for Davy boy and sting and
1: white castle of fear. Yeah.
0: All of that nonsense. And so to have this, you're like, wait a minute, was that the same folks? Because that was actually pretty good.
1: Yeah. Everybody gets lucky once in a while.
0: Well, you were not lucky here. You had to dress as a Confederate soldier, which in hindsight, boy, that's less than ideal probably. Um, but I like the idea of everybody dressing up for Halloween. You for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't
1: again, I'm a little ambivalent about it. I could go either way. Um, I like the idea of a theme and a fun theme. I think it's entertaining entertaining. I think it can be a little too over the top. And I think the whole not again, context is king. You know, you could dress up as a Confederate soldier in nineteen ninety-three and, and and not get dragged through the streets on the back of a truck. Today you could not get away with that. You know, it would be social media meltdown Um, but it was a different time and uh, it it just I think it can be done in a way that doesn't take away and distract from the product and it can be subtly entertaining and supportive you know the stuff that Tony and and Jesse were doing for example in color and play-by-play to me that was just too over the top it wasn't about that it could have been done I think uh, not more tastefully but maybe just less just less of it so that it wasn't so over the top throughout the entire show, uh, and I would have liked it better. But you know, it's it's also, in fairness, um, it was one of the things that made Halloween Havoc feel different, and that was important at the time.
0: Tony's dressed up like Jesse Ventura, and Jesse Ventura says that he is Bourbon Street's number one gynecologist. Uh, our first match is Ice Train, Shockmaster, and Charlie Norris. Taking on the Harlem Heat and the Equalizer at 9 minutes and 45 seconds. Meltzer would say for the second pay per view in a row, the other member of Heat was standing there right in front of the finish trying to figure out how to not break up the bear hug with no face keeping him from doing so. Much was fine, actually better than it looked to be on paper, except when Equalizer was in. The post match brawl with Shockmaster and Equalizer was awful. And this is the worst rated match by the readers of the observer. And it's not even close. It's just, first of all, Charlie Norris Shockmaster, ice train equalizer. Well, you guys were doing the Harlem heat dirty here. Eric
1: did not do them any favors. And interestingly enough, first of all, Charlie Norris was from Minnesota. I didn't know him while I was in Minnesota, but he came. Charlie was trained by a guy by the name of Eddie Sharkey who along with Brad Ringens, uh, and Brad really worked for Vergania, but Eddie Sharkey, I think trained uh, Sean Wallman, if I'm not mistaken, or at least had a hand in it and a number of guys that that came out of Minnesota. Um, Charlie was from the Red Lake Indian reservation, which was way up in Northwestern Minnesota. And um, I I was happy to see Charlie come to, to WCW. I was a little disappointed with the presentation. I thought it was just a little too cornball um, and, and and again, as we talked about with the Confederate soldier you know outfit on Halloween, I, I you know bringing out a Native American the way they brought out Charlie Norris in 1993 would would never fly today and I, I don't think Charlie was very comfortable with it either. in fact, I think he ended up suing WCW as a result of it. Let's uh, let's keep it. He going. was brought in by he was brought in by Greg Gagne, by the way. No, I just remembered that.
0: And the Shockmaster, of course, he's got uh, ties to the Rhodes family. Obviously, not a great debut, but we're still trying to do something with him. But man, when he fell, that character was dead on arrival, was it not?
1: It was, there was no, there was no recovering from that.
0: And again, you know, this is
1: 1993. We were still kind of following their, you know, larger than life figuratively and literally, you know, character model that everybody thought was the model that would work in wrestling. And, and it just wasn't. So I think it, it just the nature of, of Shockmaster's presentation and the, the disaster, um, that ensued during his debut just made it really difficult Harlem heat. I mean, they had only been in WCW for a couple months, I think by October. Um, I think, didn't they come in? I was watching the show and the announcers referred to them as Kane and Cole.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Look at there.
1: I thought that was pretty interesting. And so I had to go back and look at that. And that's, I believe that's how Harlem heat were initially introduced back in August when, from a creative perspective, everybody pay attention from a creative perspective, Colonel Robert Parker, um, one Harlem Heat, Kane and Cole, who were a couple of prison inmates in a
0: card game.
1: That was the premise of that story. If you can imagine which that. this
0: is why you have black guys walk into the ring in chains, which is... With a, with a fucking plantation owner. The whole thing is a misfire, but
1: it's, oh God, it was horrible. It was so horrible.
0: Right out of the mind of Ole Anderson. I'm sure they debuted in August of 93 and and you and I were mistaken. They were actually colon lash and then they would eventually be renamed Kane. So you're right. It is colon Kane eventually, but it's not the way they start, but the whole Harlem heat thing, we got to do a deep dive on sometime. Everything about this is just.
1: Less than here's, awesome. Here, and and here's, here's the one thing that I was really excited to read about Harlem Heat that I did not know for as long as I've known Harlem Heat. Um, they were trained by Ivan Putsky. Ivan Putski was one of my favorite wrestlers when I was a kid in Minnesota. I loved Ivan. Did you, did you ever watch Ivan Putzky?
0: No. Before my time. Th- I mean, I've seen his stuff as an adult, but I didn't grow up with him.
1: Oh, he was so good when he worked in AWA because he come out. He had this like cab driver's hat on. I don't know what they're called, like a Scully cap or whatever they're called. You know, he had this cap on. He come out with a wife beater before anybody knew what a wife beater was. He had a big old belly on him, and he come out with shorts that were cut off around his his uh, knees, and he'd slap his belly, and he was just and he had the Polish hammer. Ivan Putski's Polish hammer was his finish. I loved Ivan Putski. He was one of my favorite wrestlers when I, when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old.
0: Next up, we've got what would have been Yoshi Kwan taking on Ricky steamboat, but instead it's Paul Orndorf and Ricky steamboat. Yoshi blew out his his knee about 11 days prior to this. So we were robbed of a Yoshi Kwan, Yoshi Kwan pay-per-view here. Uh, <laughs> This is a Meltzer would say this is the first in a series of really good matches with lame finishes. The assassin was Orndorff's manager with no interview explaining it, nor reason given good action throughout with a lot of near falls towards the end. Finally, steamboat hit the cross body, but assassin distracted the ref. And by the time he turned around, Orndorff kicked out steamboat gets several more near falls with shoulder blocks. And then uh, steamboat throws the ref out of the way, but he misses a charge at Orndorff and sails to the floor. Assassin then loads his mask and headbutts Steamboat, who's counted out of the ring. Paul Orndorff wins three and a half stars. I, I know you chuckled. I legitimately wanted to see what you guys were doing with Yoshi Kwan. I thought the character was unique and different enough that it could have been entertaining. And I think he probably would have had a decent match with Rick Steamboat. I think the world of Paul Orndorff, but the Assassin is way out of place here for me. This feels very, very old school. It feels like something only would have hung his hat on and saying, oh, this guy knows how to get heat, just go out there and do it. But there's no real explanation. And maybe that is the way things used to be done. But in this era, it feels like there's usually some sort of a backstory. This was yeah. not, this was not a hit for me. What'd you think? I, I, I felt
1: the same way you did. I was very disappointed because I think the world of Ricky and, and Paul under, if it made me miss Paul, every time I see Paul in action, it makes me want to jump on well. Up until this weekend, makes me want to jump on a plane and go hang with him for a day. Paul, Paul was such a fun person to be around. He's just, I miss him. I miss Paul Arndorf, and I can't wait to see him again in the near future. But as far as this match goes, it was really disappointing. And I think, again, you know, expectations. When I when I first, oh my gosh, Rick see about Paul Arndorf, two. People that I've, you know, have so much respect for as performers and human beings. I know Paul a lot better than I know Ricky, but still, and my expectations were so high that I thought the match was pretty boring. I absolutely agree with you on Jody Hamilton. Jody Hamilton's a great dude. You know, he was easy when I knew him. He was easygoing guy. You know, he broke into wrestling the year I was born. Wow. 1955. And a little tidbit I just picked up on this morning, but it made absolutely no sense. The whole big masked man character—I mean, it was—it was a big deal in Oli's head. To your point, I, I totally agree with you. If I had to bet everything I own on who came up with that idea or solution, it would be Oli because that's typical Oli, or was at that time. But it was just so flat, and the finishes, and just, that's one of the big issues I had with this pay-per-view and why I feel so ambivalent about it. For as many pretty fun things and cool things that are in this pay-per-view, I think we had three matches that I can remember off the top of my head on this show that were just clusterfuck finishes that I just made no sense whatsoever, and this was one of them.
0: I've been thinking about making some personal changes lately, and I wanted to start by improving my self-care routine. The problem was I had no idea where to start, and then I found Hawthorne. Hawthorne is a premium tailored personal care brand. That's making it easy for guys to feel and smell your best. You start with their quiz and they ask me things like, what's your favorite drink? How do you like to spend a night out? Do you smoke? And I got to tell you, I feel like they took all of my answers into consideration. I also want to mention that this was actually pretty fun. Uh, it was very fast. But I felt like they nailed it. I got lots of cool stuff. Perhaps my favorite, believe it or not, is the shampoo. Uh, But you can get lots of different stuff here, whether you're talking about the face cleanser or deodorant. But I think the shampoo and the deodorant are my two go-tos. And, uh, well, the wife noticed. She liked it. So it's sticking around. And if you want to upgrade your self-care routine, Hawthorne is a fun and convenient way to get super high-quality products tailored specifically for your needs. Hawthorne even takes the risk out by giving you free shipping on your order and returns. If you don't like your products, they'll even retailer them based on your feedback, do what I did take Hawthorne's quiz today and get started on your personal self-care routine by going to hawthorne.co and use our promo code 83 weeks to get 10% off your first purchase that's dot c o, and the promo code is 83 weeks that's hawthorne.co and the promo code is 83 weeks let's keep it going talk about the next match here uh it's uh, lord stephen regal and davy boy smith and uh it's uh for the tv title they go to a 15 minute draw Meltzer would said they uh they worked a the European style early, which was really good, as Smith did a lot more and a lot of different maneuvers than he usually does. He's actually quite agile for his weight, but in a lot of matches he never shows it. Regal was doing the great Matt Wrestling, although fans in this country really don't comprehend what he's doing. The finish was supposed to be Smith doing a power slam at the bell. However, the timekeeper told them they had 10 seconds left when Smith picked Regal up for the move and then announced 20 seconds left over the house mic, so Regal <coughs> had to kick out. And they improvise the pile driver uh, at the near fall for the bell. Obviously, a, a, a situation happens here. These guys are professionals. They try to call an audible, but the timekeeper is the guy who's got this screwed up, right? Or is he just giving cues from his headset and maybe the screw up is yes. really backstage?
1: It's it's in the truck, and because the director is trying to time everything to be as perfect as it can be, and unfortunately, you have you know you have communication errors, and you have delays in communication, and sometimes it's you know especially in 1993 we weren't exactly, you know the highest quality, you know, production at that, at that point. So there was enough of a, a a delay in communication to cause that issue. I'm sure, but it was a mess. And I mean, what, it's funny when I started watching this match, I'm going, okay, great. You know, cause I, I kind of dig Steve Regal matches. I, I like that style personally. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea and I get that, but I kind of dig it. And I was pretty excited about it, but it was really slow. I mean, i was going, man, Steve was having an off day and this is just not going to be a very good match. But then it picked up, which I really appreciated by the end of it. I was really kind of excited at the, I don't want to call it the psychology, but I guess it was the pacing of the match more than anything. Cause it started slow and then built instead of Davey boy coming out and doing a bunch of the athletic things that Dave Meltzer pointed out that normally we don't see he kind of saved it. And it helped create the sense of the match building and, and, the energy building, which I thought was really well done.
0: I thought they did a great job. I I'm like you. I love watching regal matches. I also enjoy Davy boy. He was one of my favorites as a kid. This was fun to watch, but I felt bad for the guys when you could tell, oh shit, that was not the plan. Uh, let's talk about the next segment, which I like. And of course you hate it's spin the wheel, make the deal. And our, our options are spinner's choice. Texas bull rope match, first blood match, Texas death match, a Prince of darkness match, which I believe is a blindfold match, a cage match, a barbed wire match, a lumberjack with belts match, an unbelievable coal miners glove match, an I quit match, a dog collar match, and the Russian chain match. It like, there's lots of good offers here. Uh, I was so glad that it didn't land. On a silly coal miners' glove match. It lands on the Texas Death match, which is basically a last man standing match. Uh, what do you remember about the segment? I assume this is not like WWE would try to convince us later with Taboo Tuesday. This wasn't a, a quote unquote shoot. This was predetermined. Or did you really not know until that thing stopped? No,
1: no, it was predetermined.
0: And it, Again, I think I'm scarred for
1: life. I think I hate gimmick matches to this day because of things like spin the wheel, make the deal, and just the the, the incessant, never-ending desire and need by producers to keep coming up with variations of stupid gimmick matches. And, okay, Texas Deathmatch, I get it. You know, you get pinned, you get, what is it, what is it, a 10 count to get back to your feet, or you lose, or 30 seconds, or whatever it is they're calling this one a Texas death match. But if you go and watch the finish of it, the way it was being described it's just confusing. It didn't, I just hated it. I hated it. Then I still hate it as much latitude is I give to the people who were involved in creating certain things, including myself, because I watch a lot of shit that I've done and I go, oh, my God, what the hell were you thinking? Why did you let that happen? Or in some cases, why did you come up with that idea? I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not immune. I beat myself up, believe it or not, almost as much as some other people do on social media. But this was just so ill-conceived and executed that it just, eh, I am. Yeah, let's
0: move on, please. Next up is Dustin Rhodes retaining the U S title over Steve Austin. A few years from now, they're going to be gold dust and stone cold, but here they are for the U S strap in WCW. The graphic listed Austin is being managed by Rob Parker, but Parker isn't with him. And the graphic was made two weeks ahead of time, (laughs) according to the observer by normal standards, this was a good match, but heat was lacking. And these two had a tons better pay-per-view match more than a year ago. After several near falls, Austin gets a pin with his feet on the ropes. Nick Patrick orders the match to continue as Austin went to look for the belt, but Rhodes school him for the pin. And after the match, Austin hits Rhodes with the belt and Rhodes juices, two and three quarter stars. It's kind of fun to watch these guys knowing that they're going to become mega stars under different personas. But Steve Austin in this era had his working boots on his style is totally different. This is before all the knee injuries started to really slow him down. He's a hundred miles an hour bumping all over the place and Dustin Rhodes. It felt like he was sort of the chosen one from WCW. Certainly a lot of people in the locker room felt that way since his dad had really protected him in booking. What'd you think of the match? And, uh, was it fun for you to watch knowing what these guys were going to become?
1: It was fun for me to watch just on the face of the, the value of the match itself. I thought it was – to me, this was the best match on the show uh, in terms of action in the ring and what I consider to be you know, good psychology and good storytelling for me personally. Um, I I loved it. And by the way, kudos to Steve Austin. Steve, if you're out there listening to this, I'm sure you're not. But if you hear about this or, you know, it lands on your social media, kudos to you for becoming the first person that I can think of in television to actually sport a fade haircut. Steve Austin's hair was so ahead of its time. Now, he didn't have a lot of it. Keep, you know, it is what it is. But he had this badass looking fade going before fades were cool. So you got a you got tip of the hat to Steve Austin. I thought that, I'm half ass kidding. I thought the match was great. I, I really did. I think, boy, we, we, we got to look at Dustin Rhodes. Again, I'm not going to say he was in his prime. I'm sure he would disagree. But, oh, man, he had to be close. He looked so good. And Austin was – we saw this last week when we when we covered Austin. And last uh, Halloween mm-hmm. Halloween. Austin was a bumping machine and selling machine. And he was here, too, for – for Dustin. So I I loved it. I
0: would vote for this match to be the best match on the card, in my opinion. It's interesting to look back at Dustin in this era, because on the one hand, you're hearing guys in the locker room and maybe some people in the office of WCW who really take issue with Dustin's push. And they think that dusty is trying to force him down everybody's throat, but we know he's going to go on to have great success for Vince as well. So much so that It was even discussed, and again, this is rumor and innuendo, but this same year, they were looking for, hey, who could we have Hogan wrestle at WrestleMania? And one of the names was Dustin Rhodes, that this could be like a a viable match for Hulk Hogan on the other station. Uh, And of course, we know it didn't happen, but where did you land on Dustin? Did you feel like Dusty's, uh, the way he booked Dustin was actually hurting him or is that just guys who were in the bubble making much ado about nothing
1: the latter i
0: i i I thought the world of dustin still do as a matter
1: of fact in fact he just sent me a nice text um i never got the impression that dusty was force-feeding dustin dustin was dustin deserved the opportunities that he got he was that good he he wasn't no offense, Eric Watts, if if you hear about this, he wasn't Eric Watts, where you know Bill Watts was pushing his son, who really didn't have any talent, and no hopes of acquiring any or developing any, whereas Dustin had the talent and had a ton of potential, and you, you're going to watch it. You're going to see it in this match with Steve Austin if you go back and watch it. There's no question. That Dustin clearly had a good handle on psychology. His his performance in the ring, from a technical pr- perspective, perhaps not flawless, but perhaps damn close to it. Particularly given, you know, his his time in the ring at this point. So I maybe it was because I always liked Dustin on a personal basis, and maybe because I love Dusty, you know, and I, I worked with Dusty. Perhaps my perception of whether or not. Dusty treated Dustin, um, you know, unfairly or, or protect, perhaps overprotected him. Maybe that was true, and I just didn't see it because of the, the fact of my relationship. But looking back on it today, I can objectively say that you know I'm sure Dustin had some advantages, but it wasn't overt. It wasn't a Bill Watts, Eric Watts situation, and and Dustin went on to prove the fact that he deserved every. Dusty was right about him. Dustin proved that dusty was right in, in, in giving Dustin the opportunities that Dustin did get in WCW because Dustin went on to prove the fact that he not only deserved those opportunities, but went on to deserve even greater ones.
0: Let's, uh, let's get to the next match here. This is a guilty pleasure of mine and everybody's going to make fun, but I love the nasty boys. I think they had great matches. They're old school brawlers. I was entertained every time they came out. This was no exception. And they're wrestling a WCW staple at the time, Marcus Alexander Bagwell and two cold Scorpio, the nasties regain the tag straps here in about 14 and a half minutes. Meltzer actually liked it three and a half stars. And uh Scorpio is going to pull out some acrobatics and flying moves. And it's not enough to get it done. I love the pair here of the nasty boys with Misty. Uh Misty. Missy. I think Missy here with the Nasty Boys. Misty
1: was from the night before. She was from a strip club the night before.
0: <laughs> Missy though, my goodness. <laughs> She's great with the nasties here. I love this act. I I don't know why I like that pairing so well. Did you think Missy and the Nasty Boys worked as a trio?
1: Uh, I, uh, I'm not very objective when it comes to Missy. So she probably was again, um, yeah, I didn't have the highest regard for her as a talent. Now it, it worked here cause she didn't have to say much. Every time she opened her mouth, she killed the illusion. She was horrible on the mic. She wasn't believable. She was over the top. She was corny. as just, it just didn't work for me um but here she didn't have to say much so it, she worked and this worked i think one of the reasons why we see nasty boy matches th- that you and i both enjoy and and others do <clears throat> is because of the energy you know they came they worked their asses off now they weren't you know they couldn't have a technically great match but man as brawlers they they gave it as well as they took it they didn't bitch about it and they were relentless from bell to bell. They never got lazy. Nothing's changed as they got older and became less physically capable of maintaining the pace that they used to have when they were younger. It happens to everybody. But man, when they were at their peak, um, they they put on a show. They yeah, you wouldn't you're not gonna see a hurricane Rada out of them. But damn, if you just like ass beaten pay-per-views and ass beaten matches, you're gonna get one every time with the nasty boys.
0: Can you believe it? Halloween is upon us before you know it, it'll be Thanksgiving. And then it's time to start working about holiday shopping. And it really is work and worry. And this year it's even a little more stressful because a lot of us aren't going to be getting together like we might normally be. So we've really got to hit a home run with the gifts. At least that's the way I feel about it. Here's a pro tip, do what I'm doing. Go to PaintYourLife.com. Here's a way to bring all of us together. You've heard me talk about PaintYourLife.com forever, and by now you know that they can take just any photo and turn it into a world-class painting—just a picture off your freaking phone—and boom, you're working with a world-class artist, and they're going to do something by hand from scratch for you. But what about a compilation photo? We're talking about you can combine pictures, turn it into one piece. So maybe if you haven't been able to get the grandkids to see the grandparents this year. What if you had a, a photo of your grandkids and a photo of your parents, their grandparents, and they meshed them together? Sounds too good to be true, but it can happen for you at paintyourlife.com. It really is pretty cool that you can take different photos from different times, bring it all together into one painting. It's a dream come true for parents, grandparents. Maybe you had a lost loved one. I know somebody in my life who lost their brother and their brother never got to meet their son. Thepaintyourlife.com and happy. You get a professional hand painted portrait from any photo at a truly affordable price, something of yourself, your kids, your family, your pet, special place. Combine them all into one, bring folks who can't be together together. Make this the truly meaningful gift you've really always wanted to give. You choose from a team of world-class artists. You work with them until every detail is perfect. You order this custom hand-painted portrait in less than five minutes because the platform is so easy. It really is a quick and easy process, and it shows up in just about three weeks. But this is meaningful, it's personal. And it's going to make the perfect holiday gift. I, I've given this to my parents, to my in-laws. I even was gifted one first. It's the gift that keeps on giving, man. Everybody in my life is getting one of these this year. And at painterlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word ERIC, E-R-I-C, to 64000. That's ERIC to 64000. Text ERIC to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. PaintYourLife.com. Come on, guys. Get with it. Text ERIC to 64000. I know it's simple and it's old school, but when they would take a boot off and hit a motherfucker in the head with it, it was simple and it worked for me. And Sags took his boot off, hit Scorpio with it and rolled knobs on top. And that's all she wrote. It's simple, but it works. And I don't know why, but I think people are sleeping on the nasty boys as one of the better tag teams in history.
1: During a certain period of time, I I would agree with you. They were all, they, they delivered, you know, they delivered on the expectation,
0: Next up it's sting and Sid vicious, and it's not your main event. Uh, If you do want to hear about them in the main event, tune in Thursday, Jim Ross, and I will break down Halloween havoc, 1990. That was for the world title and went on last. This is for neither. This is for the franchise. Yeah. They're just trying to see who the franchise is going to be. There is a battle bowl champion. That's going to be crowned very soon. We already have a world title and we don't know what the hell to call the NWA belt, so we just want you to know this is an important match. And by the way, Meltzer thinks this was better than their Halloween Havoc match. They're brawling through the crowd. There's some choke slams. He's dropping sting uh, throat first on the guardrail. Fans are even chanting Sid, 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 which of course the announcers have to try to spin and say, no, they're actually chanting for sting. Vicious is going to slow it down with some long bear hugs. Eventually sting comes back with a pair of stinger splashes. And at one point, Colonel Robert Parker, who's managing Sid, He's not paying that close of attention and he grabs two legs, which he thinks were both stings, but in actuality, it's one leg of each guy. And he's going to hold on to Sid's leg a lot harder than stings. And that means that Sid, uh, is in trouble. So as soon as Sid and Parker start to argue, Sting comes from behind and, uh, hits the cradle two and three quarter stars. Sting is your winner. 10 minutes and 41 seconds. I don't know what about it is you know, what it is about Sid rather, but these fans, they love him and they've always loved him. Fans have always responded to him. Like he was a big star and he certainly is, you know, he is, he's been in the main event of WrestleMania now at this point with Hulk Hogan and he's back here, they're going to perceive him as a big star sting is the franchise player for WCW always has been, he picks up the win. What'd you think of this match? Watching it back for the first time in 27 years,
1: there's parts of it. I really liked uh, and I think one of the reasons fans reacted so well to Sid is if you if you know go back again. I'm not chilling here. I don't make a nickel off any of this stuff. But if you go back to the WWE network and look at this match, and you see Sid and Eric, especially compared to Sting, and Sting was at you know he, he, he physically he was at the top of his game. He looked great, and he. But Sid. Sid looked. He was so big, and it wasn't just his size. He was so proportionate. He, he he looked like he was carved out of bronze and he had, you know, he had the facial expressions. He had that big jaw. I mean, he, he looked like something out of Hollywood casting, you know, and in, in this match and I'm, you know, talk about the finish in a minute. Sting, I think one of the reasons as I was watching this this morning, you know, there's a lot of reasons why certain talents get over. There's never just one thing. It's a combination of a lot of things in most cases. But, man, one thing you could always depend on with Sting is his comeback. When it was time for Sting, no matter how bad he was getting his ass kicked, when it was time for him to make his comeback, he came back with so much fire. He wasn't just getting his stuff in. He wasn't just getting his spots in. He came back with so much emotion that you could feel it. If you were sitting up in the cheap seats, you could feel that emotion. He wasn't just going through the motions. He was going through the emotions and it just registered and it worked so well. And I think consistently when you go back and you watch things matches, those were always those moments, man, his comebacks were always right on the money. He, he never made a piss poor comeback he never made a half ass comeback he came back and we saw it here let's talk about the finish cuz i went back and watched it four freaking times i even watched it in slow motion this was this has to go down technically speaking as one of the worst finishes ever in wrestling you you know you go back and you watch it and you see first of all sting is wearing it neon like green, almost yellowish green neon tights and, and, and Sid's got black boots on and Parker is looking at both of their legs as he's grabbing them. And then eventually holding on to Sid's instead of stings and grabbing the wrong leg and causing the finish. <sighs> How could that happen? I mean, you got to go back and watch it. You just got to go back and watch it. And it's just, to me, it, as much as I kind of dug the match, mm, yeah, pretty good, you know, six out on, on a scale of 10, I would have given it a six and a half. But man, when I saw that, and this, by the way, I think is the fourth fucked up finish on this show, fourth or fifth. I'm losing count at this point, but this one, I think from a technical perspective, first of all, you could blame it on, you know, the cameraman, the, the director, you know, took this shot. Maybe he could have taken a different shot. Um, maybe, you know, the handheld cameras weren't on a shot that the director could take, unless you're sitting in the truck at that moment, it's really hard to say, but it's really Parker. You know, he was looking right at both of their legs. You could see his eyes. He zoomed in. There's no mistaking it. He just fucked up and it really took away for me. And perhaps I'm being overly critical and, you know, all that, but, oof, oof. I'm just so sensitive to WCW finishes. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just, I've been beat up over for so long. And I, and I agree with it. I mean, WCW sucked at finishes, sucked at finishes. And this is a perfect example of that human suckage.
0: Next up, one of the more memorable matches on the show, Rick rude and Rick flair for the now officially re-recognized world heavyweight title. Yeah, it's, it's hokey pokey with the NWA and WCW. Is it the international title? Is it the big gold belt? Is it the NWA world title? Whatever it is, it's our seventh match. We've got two referees here. One of which is Terry Taylor. Yes. Terry Taylor. And earlier in the show, Terry did a, an interview backstage where he says he's changed his ways. And they also make an announcement that the international promoters of WCW have recognized roots title as a world heavyweight title So it's valid. Once again, it is indeed a world title, whatever that means.
1: I got vertigo. Just listening to you cover all that. I really did. I got dizzy. I almost fell out of my chair.
0: Three quarters of a star. This is kind of fun. Um, it's a little old school, a little slower paced. They get plenty of time, uh, nearly 20 minutes. I like this feud. I like the big reveal. Of his tights, which I think were on eBay a few weeks ago, with Fifi on one leg and Flair on the other, it's a cool program. I don't know why these two characters fit, but they do for me. Ultimately, though, it's a freaking DQ. Um, the story seventh
1: match, seventh match on the card, and the fifth fucked up finish. Imagine that.
0: Flair comes off the top. Rude gets to uh, gets his feet in Flair's face. Flair comes back with chops. Then we have two ref bumps. Rude pulls an object out, but Flair back suplex him and the object goes flying. A a TBS still photographer at ringside, not realizing what was going on, grabbed the object, which as he, as Meltzer says, ruined the already bad finish. The photographer had to give the object back to Flair so he could use it and get caught by referee Randy Anderson for the DQ. Mm. And after the match, Rude tries to kidnap Fifi, but Flair tackles him on the ramp and goes for the figure four, but it's broken up by officials. I like this. Flair was notorious for being the guy who was talking to everybody else's girl. Now that somebody's doing it to him, if you're an old school fan, that's sort of turnabout's fair play, and it's kind of fun. But this whole flying object and the photographer takes it, and Flair has to negotiate it back because it's the planned finish. Whew! Less than ideal. God almighty, what a mess. I like the match, though. It's just the fuck. Well, the finish. match was
1: great. The match was great. The, but, you know, I, I I make this analogy all the time. It's like going to a movie and you, you, you love, if it's, if it's a 90-minute movie, 87 minutes of it is fantastic and the last three minutes suck. And then you walk out of the theater going, well, that sucked. That's all you remember. And unfortunately, that's how I feel about this. You know, it's not taking anything away from from Rick's effort, Ric Flair's effort, or Rick Rude's effort. I personally don't blame Rick Rude. I would much rather have walked out of the building with Fifi over my shoulder than that belt. That's just me. She's pretty hot. <laughs> so I get it. But, mm, man, that, that I don't know. I just, it's hard for me to get excited about a match when it finishes that screwed up.
0: Next up, we've got, uh, the real main event and, uh, I'm excited for this one. I know that you just off the cuff don't like gimmick matches and I get that. And you probably don't like matches like this necessarily, but my God, what a performance we're going to spin the wheel. Now we finished the deal. It's time for the Texas death match. Uh, Tony and Jesse Ventura are going to explain the rules. They use the old school death match rules, which means pinfalls don't count. And it continues until one man can answer the bell after a 30 second rest period. And, um, yeah, they also add that false count anywhere. (laughs) Uh, so it's last man standing with pins either way. We go 15 minutes and 59 seconds. And Tony Schiavone opens the match repeating that the, the whole cactus Jack angle that got us here. He lost his memory. And, uh, Eventually, of course, if you were really paying attention, you remember they recanted all that and said, no, it was all just a ruse. Um, and, and, and Jake or Jack was saying, oh, I just faked all of that to get into Vader's head, but Tony Schiavone is reiterating it. Like it actually happened. But despite all that, it's an incredible match. And Meltzer would say it's marred by an incredibly bad finish. Uh, Harley race shot cactus Jack with a stun gun. So he couldn't get up from the 10 count. And Meltzer says, that's where
1: Scott hall. That's where Scott hall got the idea
0: from Harley. Yeah. Seriously. No, I'm oh, I was going to say, come on, man. Uh, <laughs> Meltzer would say what's next. A straight edge razor, a switchblade, And finally a 44 Magnum. This is the most brutal of their three matches, which is saying a lot. It's probably the best pay-per-view match that either has had, which is saying even more, both men took brutal head on chair shots without blocking. Both men were covered in blood. Jack was opened up by Vader's continual punches around the eye, and it looked to be a hard way. They're suplexing one another on the ramp and the floor. They brawled onto the stage to a look-alike graveyard. And underneath the tombstone, they were going down some stairs, and Vader came up bloody. Jack hit him with a stiff clothesline and got the first fall on the ramp at 539. Jack did an elbow drop off the ramp to the floor gets a second pinfall in 28 seconds. They get back in the ring and Jack threw Vader into a table for a near fall. And then he tried to sunset flip off the apron onto the floor, but Vader didn't go over and tried to sit on Jack, but Jack moved. And then Jack dropped Vader over the guardrail. Uh, Jack tries to uh, flip splash over the guardrail, but Vader moves. Vader then threw Cactus Jack over the guardrail and hit him with a chair shot. He's going to get back in the ring, and Vader takes the third fall after a moonsault in four minutes and 33 seconds. Vader crushed Jack on the ramp to start the fourth fall and swings a chair like a baseball bat and gets another pin with a DDT on a chair in 216. Jack immediately got up and DDT'd Vader on a chair to score a pin. But during the rest period, Harley Race shoots Cactus Jack with a stun gun. Jack got right up after losing and gave Race a double arm DDT on the ramp but race got up too quickly and walked away. And if you didn't buy this on pay-per-view, you really owe it to yourself to go watch it and see a tape of this match four and three quarter stars, really rare in this era to see five-star matches floating around anywhere in America, but here they are. And what a performance by these guys.
1: It's pretty amazing. You know, both Mick Foley, Cactus Jack and, and Vader just No one can say they didn't give 100% or more. This was just so physical, so physical. And even at one, uh, there were so many spots in this match that I just, I cringed. You know, there was one point early on in the match where uh, Cactus Jack hit (laughs) Vader over the head with a chair. And my, Vader's hands were, not anywhere near his head to protect himself. And the camera got a perfect shot of it. And it was a full blown metal, metal chair to the head shot that, you know, I I don't know how it didn't knock Vader out or crack his head open at the very least. It was just such a physical match. But even you said it, you know, in your recap of it, you know, when Vader or excuse me, when Mick, get them all mixed up, Cactus Jack was down during the rest period. There's no rest periods at a Texas death match. And that's the thing that that's what makes me crazy about this kind of shit. Are the rules are so fucking confusing. And everybody just adds stuff to it. I mean, the Texas death match, you get pinned, you got 10 seconds to get up. If you don't get up, boom, you're done. That's a Texas death match. But this one's got rest periods. It's just, it's got so much garbage in it that yeah, the physical aspect of this match was great. But from a storytelling point of view, if the finish of the match is, I don't know, remotely associated with the finish, um, or excuse me, if the finish of this match is remotely associated with the stakes and the story, this makes no sense. And this finish again, I think we're at six out of seven, um, matches that so just as great as the match was the finish to me as advertised
0: made no sense. If you're like most people, you have a balance on your credit cards and you probably have a higher interest rate than you'd like on those cards. Why not turn those credit card balances into one monthly payment at a lower fixed interest rate and start saving some money? Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.95% APR with AutoPay and Excellent Credit. The rate is fixed, so it will never go up over the life of the loan. The application, well, it's 100% online, so you don't even have to leave your house to apply. And you can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000, and there are absolutely no fees. No fees. You can even get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. And I know because I've used Lightstream. Years ago, I was shopping around. I wanted to make sure I got the right car, but then the real trick was how did I get the best deal on my financing for said car? I went to lightstream.com. They overnighted me a check the same day. The next day, I went to the dealer and shopped like a cash buyer. I couldn't recommend Lightstream enough from personal experience. And if you've got credit card debt, you need to listen up because our listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount. Now the only way to get the discount is to go to Lightstream.com slash eighty-three weeks. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash eighty-three weeks. That's Lightstream.com slash eighty-three weeks. Of course, this is subject to credit approval. Rate includes a half a percent auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit. Term and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit Livestream.com slash 83 weeks for more information. I, uh, I just can't recommend this match enough though. Surely you agree that if you've never seen this, you should go out of your way to see it, right?
1: No, you should. And by the way, if you are a Vader fan or a cactus, Jack McFoley brother, love, what else is there? What am I missing? If you're a fan of Mick Foley and any of his characters and you're a fan of Vader, you need, you owe it to yourself. Go get WWE network. If you don't have it already, go watch this match because it's both of these amazing performers giving a hundred plus percent in a match. That was a little confusing for me, but most people obviously liked
0: by the way. Uh, subconsciously you said brother love there. You mean dude love, but let's move dude it forward. Dude
1: love. I'm sorry.
0: Let's call brother love dude love. And let's call dude love brother love and see if they notice. They won't. Uh, around this time, Vader's working house show main events against Davy boy Smith. Do you know if you guys ever seriously considered going with him for the world title? I mean, Davy boy is the world champion. A lot of people, especially across the pond feel like that was long overdue. I don't know why, but no. I mean, again,
1: there was prior to my involvement in creative. There must have been reasons for it. I don't know what they would have been. There was a period of time when Davey was still in WCW when I was calling those shots, but Davey was going through some challenges at the time and it would have made no sense
0: to me. When you watched this back, did you have one bump in particular that looked extra scary to you that you were nervous about?
1: I guess because of the sensitivity to, to chair shots, I, I cringed. When I, the rest of it, you know, look every time I see Vader get somebody back in a corner, start you know throwing punches, it's like, oh my God! And you know, McFoley was wanting him to lay it in. Mick has got to be one of the toughest human beings on the planet in many respects, as far as taking physical abuse and being durable, as I like to say. God Almighty, Because I mean, I know. I know Vader who's probably working those punches a bit, but a worked Vader punch to the head is probably like getting kicked by a year old horse. It's just brutal. But the chair shot to the head is the one that made me go, Oh God.
0: I think the, uh, the bump on the ramp, where he's on cactus is on his back and he just oh yeah away.
1: and he just dropped back. I mean, I, I think that caught Jesse. If you go back and watch that part of it towards the end, Jesse you know was like ooh, and then that was a shoot. You know, Jesse was selling that one for real.
0: I think Foley even wrote in his book that he planned that spot and hoped that it would break his back. And I know what you're thinking: Why would anyone hope for that? Well, apparently he had this Lloyd's of London policy, and he's like, I'm gonna just take a payday and go home. Uh, I'm not happy with my lot here in WCW. And, uh, this is just not as fun as it used to be. Maybe if I climb on his back and tell him to throw off 450 back on me on the unforgiving non gimmicked ramp, it'll break my back and I can take a break. Think about that. Yeah. I mean,
1: because a lot of things can happen when you break your back. I mean, you can break your back and, you know, be back to work again in 90 days or 120 days, depending on the severity of the break and where it's at. You could also barely, you know, take a bump like that and be paralyzed from the neck down. You know, I mean, the back is where all the, you know, the, the, every nerve in your body runs through your spinal cord, essentially to your brain. They all connect, but man, you could so easily end up in a wheelchair for life or worse for something like that. And uh, it's amazing that that's where, you know, McFoley's head was at.
0: Let's talk a little bit about, um, Cactus Jack and and the violence Meltzer would write the Vader Cactus Jack main event exemplified. What is beginning to turn into a dangerous trend in this business, not disturbing to fans because many love matches such as this it's disturbing because the element of risk and injury is being flirted with much too closely. When matches get as stiff and legitimately brutal as this and other recent matches have turned out to be. I was actually planning on writing this before the Havoc show, with the main emphasis being on the plight of the all Japan's women promotion in 1993 and the daredevil tactics of Sabu. But Jack and Vader then put on a match that was one of the best of the year. And in many ways defines the problem. And I think it was becoming a problem because you have to remember, this is the era where cactus Jack has his ear ripped off in Germany. He takes a power bomb on the concrete. That hasn't been a bad way for real. And I think one of his ideas here, besides drop me on the ramp and try to break my, break my back, please. Was I'm going to jump off of the balcony. I want to jump from the top of the building and take a bump from the top of the building onto the concrete floor. And someone talks him out of it. Do you remember hearing here? at havoc 93. He, yeah, that, some that, that someone was me by the way. And that, that.
1: That And I might not have been the only one. But that was also the precursor for Cactus Jack leaving WCW. Cactus was becoming a danger not only to himself, but in the opinion of WCW legal, um, was providing a significant amount of litigation exposure because of the things that he wanted to do. It was just over the top every week it was something crazier and crazier and crazier and we couldn't let it happen. And I think, you know, in addition to probably other things, you know, I never really talked to Mick about this. Maybe we will someday over a sandwich, but, um, that was, that was the straw. No pun intended. That broke the camel's back with WCW and Mick is Mick wanted to increasingly become more physical, more violent, bloodier, more over the top and WCW was going in a different direction.
0: It's unbelievable that you have someone who's willing to put it all on the line like this, you know, and listen, I have grown to, to come into the, the belief that Mick Foley is top 10 all time. When you look at his character work, his promos, his, his matches, the moments he gave us, he's just a very well-written, well-spoken asset to the business however somewhere in there there's some dark stuff that created some magic for fans but you kind of worry about the guy a little bit more than a little bit a lot
1: really a lot even you know and i know mick is proud and should be uh, of, of some of the big moments that he had in WWE, you know, but coming off the top of the cage in a hell in a cell match when he did it, the way he did it. I mean, there's so many things and look, it's not like, you know, Mick is a 175 pound gymnast. This guy's a big dude. And he, he, he I don't know how he survived it. I, I really, really don't. He's a such a, and Mick is a very, very intelligent person. I mean, he's he's not a he's not your average guy when it comes to intelligence. He's he's far above average, incredibly intelligent guy. But still as you said, he had this bizarre dark side that he needed to explore and feed. And it was becoming increasingly obvious to WCW myself included because I was friends with Mick. I mean, I, we were we were beyond just, you know, Work associates for for a period of time, and I was just like, "Okay, enough is enough, dude. Enough is enough," and that was it.
0: When it came to the readers of the Wrestling Observer, uh, it's nearly unanimous. Vader and Cactus is the best poll. The worst match is uh, Harlem Heat Equalizer. You know that whole nonsense against Ice Train, Charlie Norris, and Shockmaster. Overall. Thumbs up. I mean, you know, for me and you, you're maybe a little more reluctant because of some of the finishes and I get that, but the spectacle of this main event, my God, something to see. Let's jump to some questions. We got tons of questions here this week, Eric. Lots of people love this pay-per-view. There's no way we'll get to them all, but we'll rapid fire a few here. If you've got a question for next week's topic, you can ask it right now over at 83 weeks on Twitter. We should mention next week. We're coming to you with TNA turning point 2010. And I know a lot of you are saying, hey, wait a minute. What about Bound for Glory 2010? We'll knock that one out this week as a bonus show over at adfreeshows.com. We originally hoped to do that one in mid-October. That's when I had my my sad internet troubles here at the house. But we're back up and running now. So TNA Bound for Glory coming your way this week over at adfreeshows.com. But next week, it's all about Turning Point 2010. I'll go ahead and give you the spoilers for the rest of November. We're doing Clash of the Champions 25 on the 9th clash of the champions 17 on the 16th world war three from 1996 on the 23rd and we'll finish out november with tna final resolution 2010 so some tna content coming your way that's been a big hit as a bit of a change of pace for us so we'll keep that going but today let's get back to our halloween havoc 93 questions pender j wants to know eric how is sid to work with as a talent we've all heard the nightmare softball stories but was he as difficult as a lot of people say
1: it's a really great question and thank you for asking it i really get the opportunity to to be honest about sid um in in terms of the type of person he was i i got along great with sid he he was respectful he was professional to me he 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 treated his job with respect as far as i was concerned uh in in my dealings with him Uh, i you know i've heard all the stories but i didn't experience any of the negative things that I've read about and heard about. So I, I only judge people by the way they do business with me or treat me or, 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 or I see them treat others. And I, I never had an issue with Sid. I still enjoy seeing Sid to this day. We cross paths a couple times a year and hang out for a little bit. And I, I, I always got along great with Sid.
0: Jeff wants to know why was spin the wheel, make the deal dropped after this event? Cause it sucked.
1: Just I didn't like it. Just didn't like it.
0: I can't wait to make you spin it this this Friday then on Adfreeshows.com, dot com asshole.
1: <laughs> well, there's probably different things on the wheel.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm gonna have you and Lauren Yaffe go at it in a coal miners glove match. Mm,
1: I'm not gonna touch that.
0: <laughs> uh, Bad jokes gaming says why was Mick Foley never considered for a world title run? A heel cactus jack holding the belt while the baby face thing chased him just sounds like money to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that predated my creative influence or input. So I'm not sure why others didn't see that as an opportunity. Sitting here, you know, 25 or 27 years later, you know, uh, I could see it, you know, on paper. I, I could see that making sense. Um, but
0: again, I wasn't. I wasn't
1: in that. I wasn't in the room at the time. So I I couldn't tell you why it never happened.
0: Taylor wants to know a question that you may not be able to answer. So while I'll pivot, how did Foley and Vader feel about the finish of such a tough match being from a stun gun? And my follow-up to you, Eric is if you don't know how they felt about it, how did you feel about a stun gun being what's used in the finish?
1: Hated it. I didn't like it. I don't know how they felt. I didn't talk to them about it. you know, when it was over, um, I would imagine, you know, I knew Mick Foley better than I knew Leon White, Vader. Um, So I I would probably say Mick overall was probably pretty happy with the match because of the physicality and the intensity of it, even if he was disappointed that he didn't break his back at the end. Um, I think he probably felt pretty energized and full of adrenaline when it was over. So I don't think the – Fakak to finish necessarily bothered him as much as it did me. Um, not sure about Leon. I didn't know him well enough to get to, to take a, a stab at what he might've been thinking. Probably he was okay with it because it was like that finish would not have happened the way it happened. Had it not been for Harley and, and Vader feeling it was the right thing to do. Trust me. If they would have felt like it was the wrong thing to do the finish would not have happened.
0: Let's, um, Let's follow up to that. You hated the stun gun finish. Why? What, what, what did you hate about that? It, it came
1: from out of nowhere. It, it wasn't visually, there was no buildup to it. You know, it just came so from out of nowhere I, that it almost seemed like an afterthought to me. It's like, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll do this as opposed to a, a buildup for it. Yeah, there was great physicality back and forth, boom, boom, boom. But it's like watching, you know, Rocky and Apollo Creed just pounding the piss out of each other in the final round and, you know, having somebody throwing an empty bottle of water and hitting Rocky Bobo in the head and watching him get knocked out from it. Some feeling, it's the roughest analogy I've probably come up with in a while, but that's what it felt like to me right in the middle of this drama and this, these huge bumps and this great action. <laughs> stun gun. <laughs> eh, whoop, that's enough. I mean, 450 pound guy drops you on your fucking back on a hard you know, surface that didn't kill you, but a stun gun will. It's just, it's nonsensical to me. And it's just me, and I'm probably being overly critical because I just can't stand these kind of matches. But, and I'm I'm so I crave story, I crave psychology. I, when I see it, I fall in love with wrestling all over again. And when I fail to see it, it just makes me go. Ah, and people are surprised why fewer people are watching wrestling today, because the same problem exists today. You see the same silliness today. The athleticism surrounding it tends to be much better and the presentation from a production value point of view is much better. But just not not always. I'm not saying across the boards. There are lots of exceptions and I'm very grateful to see them when they happen. But so much of what we see is nonsensical. And it doesn't really have any story and it doesn't really build and there's no psychology. It's just action for the sake of action. And that's kind of what this finish felt like to me. It was, oh, we got to get out of this. Oh, I know. We'll do this. Eh, Boom. That's the end of the match. Ah, I don't know. It was anticlimactic for me.
0: You liked it a lot better when Scott Hall lit up Goldberg and ruined the Golden Goose.
1: Oh, that was way better.
0: It didn't, way better. It was proper buildup. It wasn't out of nowhere. It was all the things no, you love it was, about it, a stuntman. No,
1: it, it, I'm, I'm trying to be cute. It's, it was stupid. My bad.
0: <laughs> I let it happen. I was really hoping we could hoot and holler and you're like, oh fuck, I just got to take my sword on that one. I, that's my bad. <laughs>
1: that's just, just, By the way, did you know that on October 23rd <laughs> in 1157 at the Battle of Groth Heath it ended the civil war in Denmark, King Sven. The third is killed and Vladimir the first restores the country. That's me changing the subject.
0: By there the way, you uh, you'll love this week on what happened when in the middle of the pay-per-view, I just start doing your, your, your bit here Where you. Here's what was happening in history, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I started reading the billboard 100 in the box office and Tony Schiavone laughed for an hour. It was fun stuff.
1: No, I, it's just whenever I need to change the subject, I just come up with a little piece of trivia that somehow is indirectly tied to this event. And here I went back all the way to 1157. <laughs> <laughs> King Sven. Thank God. King Sven. The third was killed. and Vladimir the first restored the country. Otherwise Denmark, as we know it wouldn't exist.
0: Greg wants to know, did Ric Flair have any heat with Rick rude after his post-match antics?
1: I think so. There was, there was a lot of heat between those two. I, I don't know why, Bad chemistry, I guess. Lack of trust. You know, Rick, Rick, unfortunately, uh, uh, you either really, really loved Rick or you really, really didn't love Rick. I mean, there's no
0: in-between. You love or hate
1: No, there is no in-between. And Rick Rude fell decidedly on the didn't love Rick side of the fence.
0: Rajiv says, Tony Shivani said on his podcast that he spoke less on this show because in the past... He didn't have to talk about everything and let the action speak for itself. Do you like this approach or do you think the play-by-play announcer should call everything as he sees it?
1: I didn't really like and no offense to Tony. I know Tony was doing the best he could. I, I think that the chemistry between Tony and Jesse at times could have been strained or was strained. Um, I was, I wasn't going to bring this up and I'm not sure. I'm glad that you did or not. Cause I don't like to be critical, but I don't think the play by playing the color was good at all on this show. I'm, I'm such, you know, God, I'm sick of hearing myself say this. So I'm sure the audience is sick of hearing me say it. But a play by plays a good, you know what's interesting? Now I'm glad you brought it up. Because here's an analogy I think I can make that many people will relate to. And it has nothing to do with wrestling. I could care less whether I watch football on television or not. If there's nothing else going on, if it's a Steelers game, I'll I'll probably drop in because I, I, for whatever reason, I'm still a Steelers fan, but for the most part, I don't enjoy watching football as much as I enjoy listening to football on the radio. And just a couple of weeks ago, when when the season first got started, I was outside. It was a beautiful day here in Wyoming. I was out doing something, and I had the radio on and and, and I'm listening to football. And I, I actually stopped whatever I was doing. It was some cleaning out the garage or doing something. And I, I, I stopped doing what I was doing and just sat on the back of my truck with the beer and loved listening to football on the radio. And I asked myself why? my favorite question, why do I enjoy listening to football on the radio more than I enjoy watching it on television? And as, as that question was kind of ricocheting around inside of my skull, I started paying very close attention to the play-by-play and the color that I was listening to uh, on this particular game. It was a Denver Broncos game. And I realized that the reason I, lo- I would prefer to listen to the, an NFL game on the radio, and it's p- probably the same as true for college football, but I'm not a huge college football fan, um, just never got into it, is because when you're doing play-by-play for radio, and Jim Ross could probably speak to this much better than I can, but what I was hearing while I was listening was a play-by-play man doing exactly what a play-by-play person should do he was describing so much of what he was seeing that i felt like i was right there my imagination was able to engage a visual presentation based on what my ears were hearing audibly and i think when you when when you are great at play by play and you do a great job of describing not only what you see but almost to the point where you can describe how you can smell the bratwurst cooking on the grills out, you know, in the parking lot where people are still tailgating or whatever, you know, the popcorn in the arena or the describe the energy, you know, when you, when you're so good with words and and telling a story and painting, more importantly, painting a picture that allows the listener's imagination to engage. I think the listener, in my case, the listener becomes more interested in what their imagination is portraying in their mind than what you're actually seeing on TV. Now, I know if you're a hardcore football fan, you won't, and I do like to watch it when I do watch it. There are some things I enjoy. I love watching plays develop. You know, I love the visual of you know, special moments and, you know, a great reception or a great sack and all. I mean, that has value to me too. Don't get me wrong, but there's something special about a great play-by-play person painting that picture in a way that's actually better than the reality that you would see visually. And, and, The same is true in this particular uh, game with the Denver Broncos that I was listening to. The color commentator did exactly what a color commentator should do is add color to the picture, make the picture brighter, make the character shine a little bit more add I mean that's where it comes from color commentary you're there to add color you're not there to get yourself over you're not there to be a fucking comedian you're not there to to be a bigger heel than the guy that's in the ring which is you know one of my big criticisms of Jesse Ventura he just he was great in the beginning but he 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 started overdoing it it was more about getting jesse over than it was getting the talent over talent became secondary in the ring and listening to good color and play by play i think is I encourage people to do it. And if if you know, if you're driving, if you're in your car, you're on your way to work or something, or whatever, and you have a chance to listen to a college football game or listen to an NFL game on the radio, take take advantage of that and see if you think I'm right or wrong. But I, I think really good play-by-play is an art form that's been lost. Really good color commentary is an art form that's been lost for a long time. And it's one of the reasons I still love, you know, listening to, you know, I love listening to Tony. Tony can be great at it. But I think that, I think that if the art form were to go back to a little bit more traditional role for play-by-play and color, um, I think the business overall would be enhanced. That's my personal take. Doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean anybody should listen to me. But you asked me and I had to share
0: my opinion. The fifth horseman wants to know Ganya suggested that he was the one who wanted to build two world champions to unify them. And the fifth horseman says, Eric has hinted that Greg has lied or embellished about many things, but was the international world title part of Greg's suggestion? No, no, no. And no. And I just,
1: I feel so bad for having to expose Greg Ganya for the fraud that he's been his entire life. Um, and, and probably continues to be to this day. And unfortunately he's, he's got an audience of about four or five people that'll actually listen to him anymore because most everybody around him, including most members of his family realize what a fraud he is um interestingly enough i ran into one of his sisters on a flight a couple years ago and this is before all this stuff happened and you played all these interviews for me and stuff her name is beth Ganya, and she was a flight attendant for she might still be i don't know but i ran into beth and said hey how's greg and she rolled her eyes you know and i'm not going to repeat the story she told me because it involves other people but um greg's just a fraud And I think he'd have a hard time believing most of what comes out of his mouth.
0: Boy, I've got a good idea for next year. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all she wrote for Halloween Havoc 1993. Hope you'll tune in next week to hear TNA turning point 2010. Hope you'll check out adfreeshows.com. We've got lots of fun announcements uh, lined up and everything's going down in November, except this week, we're going to drop a little fires back on you. We're going to drop a little TNA bound for glory on you. And of course you get turning point. All early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. Until next time, he is at ebischoff. I am at hey hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you right here next week on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey, you love the show, right? We'll show off that
1: love with a shirt from ericbischoff.com or get your gimmick at boxagimmics.com, of the official store of 83 Weeks. Posters, hats, tumblers, accessories, and more. Boxagimmics.com. Okay, stop what you're doing. Listen very, very carefully. The most hated jeweler in America is excited to introduce you to someone very special. Oh, she's beautiful, classy. She's brilliant. She will dazzle you. People just can't stop staring at her. Meet Krista. And she's easy. Wait. What? Krista is Steven Singer's most loved engagement ring, and it takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond, expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting that will withstand the test of time. Krista is available. She's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer isn't in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent full one-carat round brilliant diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive. Plus, free shipping, and get this, 12 months interest-free financing. Stephen's showroom is open by appointment only, or you can go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Stephen Singer Jewelers. Real jewelry, real experts for your real love. That's IHateStevenSinger.com.
0: If you're not convinced already, check this out. Ryan in North Carolina gave SaveWithConrad.com a five-star review. He wrote, saving money is the name of the game, and Derek made it happen. Saving over $3,000 a year on my payments with an interest rate in the twos. I guess it pays to be a wrestling fan after all. What about Scotty in Arkansas? He left us a five-star review, and he wrote, after listening to the podcast, I did some research on mortgage rates and refinancing. I reached out to Conrad's staff. Long story short, I was able to cut 10 years off of my loan. My payment only went up $80 a month, but I knocked off $142,000. Diane was a pleasure to deal with. Very helpful. Plus I signed my closing papers at my kitchen table. Can't beat that five stars to the team at SaveWithConrad.com. And maybe you're thinking, man, I don't own a house. Well, maybe you should just ask Anthony in Arizona. He left us a five-star review that read. I just closed seven days early on my new home in Arizona. Your team killed it. They were ready to close two weeks early. Thanks to the team for the help buying our Arizona dream home. Thanks for the pod team for all the content. No, thank you, Anthony, and thank you for listening. But if you really want to save money, if you're really ready to buy a house it doesn't get any faster, cheaper, or better than right now, get it done at SaveWithConrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket, and you can be our next five-star review, saving tens of thousands of dollars at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no payments in November or December? That's right, no payments until next year at savewithconrad.com.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together,